Hey everyone, we're running a sale on subscriptions to Waypoint Plus so you can get 25% off an annual subscription through the end of the year with the coupon code WAYLASTMINUTE. If you're looking for a last minute gift, give the gift of Waypoint. You can choose a date for your subscription to be delivered to the recipient so as not to ruin the surprise. Ooh. Or you can buy one for yourself. Visit vice.com slash waypoint to order. Crank up the music, turn on the blue lights, and give yourself over to your most alienating vocational obsessions. It's time to go manhunting. We're working through the filmography of Michael Mann, one of our most singular directors whose action dramas are beloved objects for me and our guests. Uh, Though I suppose today filmography is not quite the right word, as we are talking about his time producing the iconic 1980s TV show Miami Vice. Joining me, as always, uh, when we go manhunting, we have Nextlander's Alex Navarro. Thank you for having me. I, uh, as a big-time Phil Collins aficionado, finally now is my time to shine. Uh, we are also joined once again by freelance writer Dia Lucina. Hey! So we got to get Natalie in here to do the the drum beat. We should, and that's how we that's how we can generate a conspiracy theory that the like that one of the riffs is actually altered for the show or something, uh, and that it actually it was just it literally did hit different uh, on the uh, on the pilot episode, uh, and of course we have Ricardo Contreras on the boards. Uh, so you can't really explain Michael Mann's career without getting into Miami Vice. It defined his creative brand for better and also for worse. And it's probably the thing that most set him up for his incredibly fruitful period from the early 90s to the mid 2000s. Uh, It's also ironic that this becomes such a defining work because as with Crime Story, uh, which is another show with man's fingerprints all over it, his work as a producer makes his direct contributions harder to track. Uh, he inherited the show when the uh, series creator, Anthony Yurkovich, left shortly into its first season. Michael Mann didn't direct any of the episodes and famously only has one writer's credit uh, on an episode. So I think one of the things we're going to be discussing is the ways in which this feels like a man movie and the ways in which it very much doesn't. Along the way, I think we can't help but end up talking about Miami Vice as a weekly cop drama and as a cultural object that is remembered more via parody than presence in like popular discussion. Uh, so I think to start out, I'm I'm just curious what everyone's relationship to the show was. Uh, as we headed into this, uh, like, did did you watch it back in the day? Uh, and did like, did you have an impression of it before we actually like got into watching them fresh uh, for this episode? Yeah, I so I was as a for someone who was raised primarily through the eighties as a kid, I was certainly aware of it. You know, like you see the ads on TV. You know, it's it's a thing you come across regularly. But I didn't watch a lot of cop shows when I was like a little kid. Like I was much more into cartoons and when i did watch like tv drama stuff it was much more in like the murder she wrote vein like i was at my grandmother's house and she wanted to watch angela lansbury so 
I did not really start coming across Miami Vice until much later when it was in syndication. I want to say on Spike TV or the thing that Spike TV was that predated that TNN, whatever, whatever the, the various permutations of that network. They were definitely showing reruns for a long time. And I remember watching, if not all, then most of the series then, like sometime in probably the mid to late 90s. Uh, and being very struck by just how just all-encompassing 80s the whole thing was. Uh, and also, you know, just really uh, definitely realizing that there was something to this Don Johnson, uh, Philip Michael Thomas, like, pairing. They actually did have some chemistry. It was a fun, fun show. But, uh, yeah, I was definitely a latecomer to it. Yeah, I am... Um you know we were uh we were a nightly news and records household growing up so we didn't really watch a lot of like kind of television when i was a little kid um i didn't catch miami vice until eventually i did get uh i was just around for the finale the series finale when it was airing and just kind of going what the hell <laughs> and then just that was my memory of miami vice whenever when anyone talked about miami vice you know, it was just like, I remembered this bit and I'm sorry, it was terrible. I don't know why you have this fondness for it. Um, until much later when I became a big Silk Stockings fan when that was concurrent. Hell yeah. And my and my stepfather, who had watched Miami Vice, was like, this is just like Miami Vice, but with more boobs in it. And I was just like, okay, guess it makes it a better show. But um. So then I, he made me watch a little bit of Miami Vice, like that we found, like again, like I think on like the Spike Network and stuff <laughs> like that. But um, yeah, and so that was kind of my experience. But really, it was just kind of Miami Vice was just kind of inescapable as a cultural object. Um, it was just kind of in everything, you know, everything parried it, parried, parodied it. Yes. Um, you know, so that was really where, like, or, you know, like even people like, you know, not even just parroting, but like just being like, yeah, fucking Miami Vice was great. Here's let's let's reference it here. Um, and that was my experience with it almost exclusively until like this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think it also falls into sort of an awkward valley where I think shows like Hill Street Blues reside as well, where it's clearly a departure from a lot of the network primetime dramas that preceded it but also is a pretty long ways away from like the birth of prestige TV or even the network precursors of that period uh, that started to run in the nineties. Like there are times that Miami vice does string together like great episodes, great moments uh, like, and, and actually ends up being understated. But then for every moment like that, there's probably a half dozen that do scream like 1980s network weekly cop procedural. Um, oh, totally. And I think one of the the major things that I didn't remember as well, because I think the moments that stuck out in my memory as like sort of defining Miami Vice is it being kind of a brooding, uh, frequently melancholy kind of show. And I think in its best moments, it is. But the thing I forgot and just like selectively edited out of my memory of the show is all the times that it wants to be a uh kooky cop drama with all the all the cop friends uh you know being goofy and joking around with each other and being pretty lighthearted and there are times that 
those two things are not just intention, but like will even clash within within the same scene. Those two things will straight up slam into one another from time to yeah. time. Which is funny because my my perception was like the flip of yours, Rob, where I was like my awareness was like, oh, yeah, Miami Vice is this wacky buddy show, kind of like Lethal Weapon, but very 1980s. And well, like, it's not really serious at all. And that, but, it, but sometimes it does have like those kind of like, you know, special episode moments. Well, and this is uh, like Michael Mann was a writer on Starsky and Hutch, which also had sort of a similar character mm, to this. Yeah. Uh, where like people forget Starsky and Hutch also would try to be, it's like, oh man, like this is just hard out there to be, to be a cop. <laughs> uh, it's a hard world. But Starsky and Hutch, as it's remembered, is like buddy cop show. Uh, yeah. It's Huggy know, Bear. Like Everyone that. remembers Huggy Bear. Yeah. So like like this is them slowly trying to sort of crank up the slider to uh <laughs> I guess both uh like grim realism uh it like as it tries to tackle some of the aspects of the defining conflict of the show which is uh the drug war in uh South Florida in the 1980s. Uh let's get into the pilot which I think is probably what looms largest in popular memory like i think still even though the the series ran for five seasons like the pilot is probably the most enduring uh impression it left on a lot of folks and does kind of stand stand apart as a separate movie uh i will i i will say um the parts of it i remembered do hit like really, really well and effectively. There's great moments in it. Also, this is clearly a work in progress pilot as they are trying to dial in both the characters and the feel of the show. Um, <laughs> and then there's parts of it that are just deeply unconvincing uh, mm-hmm. and, and and very much like journeyman uh, sort, sort of work. But the sort of the, the short version of, of the pilot, the thing that has to set up is I think quite purposefully, it opens with a more familiar setting, uh, which is sort of an under a New York underworld uh, where a cop on a revenge mission uh, trying to avenge his partner. We'll get to that in a second. Um, finds the crime lord who killed his buddy, uh, his, his brother, who was also a cop. And fails to fails to assassinate him, uh, fails to assassinate this this crime lord Calderon, tracks him to Miami, uh, where he falls falls in alongside uh, an investigation of uh, another of the Miami Dade uh, Vice Unit, which has also just had a police officer uh, killed in a bombing. Uh, Sonny Crockett's partner is killed in the opening uh, minutes of this episode. And so these two, these two cops, one, uh, a quintessentially like Miami vice cop type character played by Don Johnson and uh, Philip Michael Thomas's uh, Tubbs, uh, Ricardo Tubbs uh, from New York are forced to work together and try and find Calderon spoiler. They will, but he will get away to become uh, what appears to be sort of a series villain uh, before they hit reset on that decision before Sweet literally Sweet comes around. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> uh, but so the the first like I would say the first half of the pilot is t- like Tubbs and Crockett slowly wor- lo- like learning to trust each other. And then the second half is we got to get this called our own guy um, and culminating in, you know, an exposure of a corrupt police officer 
Uh, and then an iconic like nighttime Ferrari drive uh, mm-hmm. through the uh, iconic nighttime yes. Ferrari drive accompanied uh, by Phil Collins in the air tonight. So let's let's get into it, because um, I will say it puts a lot of markers down real fast. Like this is an incredibly like the, the opening of the film, uh, the opening of the show in a lot of ways does play out. This was often the, the the rap against the show at times as well. It plays out like a music video. Yeah. Um, what is it? There's a, there's two, I mean, I guess there's two different ways that this show has been described as being created. And one of them was literally an email or, a, you know, a message from someone at a studio saying MTV cops, you know, and that is that, that very much reads in what they are, they are putting down in this first episode, this idea of we are going to try and graft this new wave style, this, you know, kind of art, you know, art deco, like neon tinted, like visual style that is very hip right now onto a cop show. And in a weird way, going back and rewatching all these episodes, I almost think the pilot is more successful than just about anything else in the series. Um, you're right that there are aspects that do feel like they are not fully fleshed out there. Or they have not quite gotten the quite the right tone on just yet. But like as a sing, if you if you separate it from the rest of the show and just like put it as a standalone work, it works really well on its own. Like the the setup, like it's 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 a good B action movie they have made with that with that with that episode. And in a way, it kind of feels like. You know, not necessarily the invention because there have been other things like it, but it does feel like the blueprint for like a lot of buddy cop comedies that kind and buddy cop action movies that came along after it. Like they, the way they set up the two, you know, kind of divergent personalities, the way they kind of thrust them together in a situation that neither of them really wants to be in, but then they find common ground. The pop soundtrack, you know, the sort of generic but very sneering villain, like all of it kind of fits together in a way that feels like, hey, this is a pretty good action movie, but also we have to make five more seasons of television out of it. Yeah, like even the way like they set up, like, you know, we have the the New York versus Miami right up front. Mm-hmm. Um, though I do remember like, you know, the the scene where where with Sonny's partner Eddie. You know, and I'm just like, I'm like, oh man, Jimmy Smith is in this. I don't remember Jimmy Smith. Literally Smith's the same reaction. I <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, shit, yeah, Jimmy Smith's fucking. And then like, I'm like, right as I'm having this moment of like, yeah, Jimmy Smith, this is great. I forgot. And then boom. Oh no. And I was just like, oh shit, they did the thing. He's got a pregnant wife. Uh, Dude, I was watching. I was like, re- why don't I remember Jimmy Smith's being in this? And he was <laughs> like, man, what's the matter? Oh, I just had a fight with my wife. Oh, your super pregnant wife? You should call her. Okay, I'll go <laughs> do that. Wait, partner, we gotta go. No time to call your super pregnant wife. And I was like, this is why I don't remember Jimmy Smith yep. being in this. <laughs> you are the most dead anyone has ever been in the first ten minutes of a show. <laughs> uh. Yeah, and but it's also and super think, effective. Like, yeah, it worked on me. I was just like, "Oh, damn, I like that guy." Here's the other thing: um, I think it is harder than people think to make a compelling, uh, like, silent, like, musically accompanied se- sequence play out in a TV show. Like, to a degree, there's always that argument that like. Leaning on a licensed soundtrack is also using a crutch to some extent, right? Where mm-hmm. where it's like, I am going to just put the, I'm going to hit play on the emotion of the scene and just like let the soundtrack sort of carry it. But I think something Miami Vice is is really like top, uh, top drawer at is through its editing 
actually like having the music and sound accompany each other really, really well and uh, sort of inform one another. The sequence with, with, with Tubbs sort of stalking Calderon through that club, as we see him uh, on the hunt, as we sort of see him like looking across crowded rooms and taking in all the details uh, as this like deafening soundtrack uh, plays out. It, it only gets more deafening as the series goes on, by the way, like later, later series runs. I'm like, damn, the mix is real high on the, on the music <laughs> and it works. I think it's a good decision. I think they I think they sort of lean into the fact that like, fuck it, we will just lean into the MTV cops montage uh, thing. We paid for license this. We're going to get our money's worth. Yeah. And they paid for music in a way that other TV shows, certainly of that era, and even in the years after that, really did not for the most part. Like, you know, music licensing is expensive and it's a, you know, they were using top 40 hits. These were not just like obscure bands that were kind of floating in there and kind of getting some notoriety from the show. It was like, no, these songs were already charting huge. They were commanding, I'm sure, big money to get these. And, you know, they didn't wield that budget stupidly like they like you said they 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 applied the songs i think later seasons they kind of get away from that and they're just kind of throwing shit at the wall and it maybe doesn't hit the same way but like in those first few seasons like the music direction in that show is i think exquisite yeah and i bring in cindy lopper yeah like what dude it's so good <laughs> so that good whole scene. and like the, yeah the, the juxtaposition of like the growing Gross. menace of that scene accompanied by that song uh is is just incredible you're sort of sitting there being like yeah this is this is a great song and then you're also like something really awful is gonna happen and everyone's guard Mm -hmm. is down and like yeah there's another one of those with i want to know what love is that i feel like is just like one of the dark like one of the better darker juxtapositions of like this really you know lovely you know kind of song and it's just like oh the most fucked up shit imaginable is happening behind it it's great so one of the other things that kind of jumped out at me in the opening of this uh, pilot is that so the conceit of all of this is that Sonny Crockett is in deep cover leading this double life as Sonny Burnett, a yeah. Miami smuggler whose cover is somehow never blown. Um, Despite that, he uses the same alias for five years and just like. <laughs> Goes to the cop shop routinely, like, well, time yeah. to leave my smuggler boat uh, and and go to police headquarters. But so we we see him riding around with uh, like a a a middleman, basically a, a drug running middleman, as they try to broker a deal. But they have this conversation, and this is something that I didn't remember as well, which is that it is funny to juxtapose this with like. I think in a lot of ways, like, with the exception of shit like maybe NYPD Blue or, uh, like, The Wire, I feel like most cop movies and the the cop shows in the 90s and maybe even movies did tend to very much embrace, like, war on drugs type rhetoric. Oh, yeah. And I was kind of struck by how much Miami Vice is very cynical about the whole enterprise, even in its opening scenes, where there is this sense of... Yeah, there is a drug war going on. It is destined to fail. Uh, but in the meantime, here are the two sides drawn up in this unwinnable conflict uh, that's, that is going to catch a lot of people in the middle of it. And one of the funny beats in this in this drive to to the, the drug deal is the, the middleman starts talking about how he's making so much money uh, off of cocaine. 
And he's just starting to think about, man, what about them farmers? You know, those farmers don't make anything from this cocaine. He wants to give back. And he starts, like, prattling on about his desire to, like, take some of his proceeds. And, like, I don't know. Like, sponsor a school. Like, sponsor some, like, kid from uh, the coca fields. And, like, you know, just do something for for those folks. Not every drug dealer is, you know, a mustache twirling villain. Like sometimes they're just guys who got into this thing and they're just it made them a lot of money. And they're not necessarily like just, you know, bad cartoon stereotypes of a Colombian drug dealer. Like it's just, you know, it's just a guy who's doing a thing and this is my life and it's maybe it's not great. But hey, you know, well, there's stereotypes of like also like kind of your liberal businessman in, right. in some ways, too, where it's like, yeah, I'm benefiting wildly from an exploitative, uh, you know, arrangement and a weird distortion in the marketplace. And I feel kind of guilty about that. Not enough, not guilty enough to stop doing any of it. Right. But like, I don't know, maybe I could find a way to like stop my conscience. And I think this is something that like comes up a lot is the degree to which the world of drug smuggling, drug dealing, drug production mirrors the arch capitalism of the 80s. Oh, and they get into that regularly in the series. Like there are at least a few different villains that crop up that are just straight up arch capitalists. And I'm not going to go so far as to say this show is like anti-capitalist in any particular way. If anything, it is like maybe a little bit of, well, more than a little bit, a celebration of the excesses of that. (laughs) But, you know, they, they also aren't afraid to kind of draw a line between like, Yo, Wall Street is actually just benefiting off all these drug conflicts and you can't get in the way of that shit, no matter how how good a cop you might be. So we get um we get Crockett's partner blown yeah. the fuck up. Uh and he immediately uh goes on a crusade to figure out like who is behind it. And ironically, and I think this is another this is a, such a funny bit. The first quarter of the pilot Tubbs and Crockett are both trying to work their way into a drug deal that culminates in a drug deal where literally one person out of like the 20 who are gathered is an actual criminal and every single other person is a cop from a different agency or different department. And this and and Crockett even comments on it, like just the absurdity of the number of crossed wires was another theme of the show. Like, why is this always going to be futile? Uh, because the entire thing has become a bureaucratic and departmental, uh, what's the way to put it? Like clusterfuck clusterfuck. And also like a, a reason for being, uh, that there are so many now bureaucratic jobs that depend on fighting the drug war that like they would fight this war, even if there were not a war to fight. Um, and so we do get this, this, like these two men sort of closing in on each other uh, from opposite sides of this undercover drug deal. And we get our first sort of um, meet cute chase between <laughs> uh, Crockett and Tubbs, which like it is ridiculous, but fuck if it isn't cool. Tubbs hops into a speedboat and begins speedboating away from the drug bust. And Crockett chases him in a Camaro. And you might think, how does come? I don't think it's I don't think it's the Ferrari in the at this point. No, the Ferrari and, doesn't yeah. come around until later. Yeah, um, but I do love that. Like they're like, you know, it'd be awesome a speedboat chase versus a car, 
And they have to do a lot to make it so that, like, the speedboat can't just boat away from the car where it's like they're in the deepest canal you can possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's kind of awesome. Like, and it, it also kind of, like, gets at something else here, which is um, this show does a lot of cool, like, hardware porn at times uh, and a lot of, like, location shooting where when you're when you're like on that boat with uh like Philip Michael Thomas as he's like opening up the engine on that thing like you feel the bow spray coming off that thing like you, the the glow of the instrument panels it looks fucking fantastic but finally this sort of brings them into uh like into alliance and Alex you mentioned the chemistry between uh, Philip Michael Thomas and uh, Don Johnson, uh, mm-hmm. the iconic uh, Crockett and Tubbs partnership. And I was also struck by this too. Um, there is more to this than than I think is given given credit. Yeah, I mean they're you know they're TV actors, and you know Don Johnson's career following this was not exactly you know one of like great range. You know, in terms of characters, he was he was able to play. And I'd say Philip Mike Thomas, very similar, you know, uh, unless you count his psychic hotline days. He did not necessarily go on to, you know, a storied career after this. But I think them together, especially in this environment, works well. Like, I think they they play off one another well. And they the characters are not they're not that much deeper than, you know, your kind of your average cop show. But they're given a lot more to play around with and a lot more vibes and a lot more, you know, like interesting sort of uh you know, scenery and characters to play around with than I think a lot of other cop shows of this era got. And, you know, they make it work. They, 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 they're, they're fun with each other. Like when they fight, it feels like it's, it's relatively genuine. I think sometimes Philip Michael Thomas has a little bit more of a struggle when it comes to like trying to exude, you know, pathos and anger and anguish. Not that Don Johnson is that much better at it, but like, you know, they, they they make do with what they, the the skill set that they have, and I think that they are ideal for the scene and the setting that they are given. I also feel like I think Don Johnson, his range lies in a particular direction, and when they play to it, uh, he's a very fine actor. I think it's when they want to, like, let's be real. Don Johnson excels at playing charming good old boy asshole yes yeah and every time they try to make him not a good old boy asshole they detract from the quality of his performance like the asshole always has to be there doesn't mean he can't be other things but like every time the show leans into that aspect of it it's great every time they just try to make him an unapologetically good or sentimental uh character it starts falling flat because like there is just something about Don Johnson, like you will never because he's always smugly grim. Yeah, mm-hmm. like is. that is his his baseline tone is like smugly grim, and so you do need that that needs to be folded in. He can't just be the purely good dad. You know, he's got to be the purely good dad. The the good dad, kind of an asshole. He's gonna throw the ball at his son, and if his son doesn't catch it, he's gonna be a little let down in his heart. Yeah, and he definitely has a little bit of that, like, kind of overly world-weary, like, you know, whatever, nothing matters, we're all going to die, so fuck it kind of attitude, <laughs> which, you know, sort of became more prevalent in online spaces later on. But, uh, you know, his his version of it is very much the sort of 
self-destructive, like I'm undercover and I don't know which person I am anymore kind of personality, which is why I'm kind of glad they got away from the wife and son stuff after a fairly short period on the series. Like you get a little bit of it, but here he's got an ex-wife, you know, and and they kind of deal with it more. And again, we have another man thing here of man who is very good at what he does and is very fixated on his job being complicated by wanting to have a normal life with, you know, a wife and a child and all of that. But I think they were smart to eventually kind of just move off of that because, like you said, it's just when he's trying to be the good dad character, like, I feel like that stuff is just not playing well at all. Yeah, he um, like there are they don't really call out that theme, too, when he after the bad day at work in which his partner killed and he and his wife start up the familiar fights. And then he sort of reveals the reason I'm late, actually, is because this person who's basically an extended member of our family was just killed. Um, That changes the tenor of it. But, you know, she sort of she she sort of calls out this very like man idea but also it's just a trope of undercover like crime films of uh there is something in you that would chase this regardless she says you know you and the you and the drug dealers you pursue are like both alike you're both in it for the action um and i i think that is is a tad unjust at times but there is something to it um and i think the way they end up dispensing with the the family subplot is really effective when they revisit calderon Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think like, yeah, we, I think we get one of our better moments of Don Johnson when he's talking to, uh, his fellow vice detective, Gina, uh, slash love interest in this, uh, pilot where they're hanging out on his boat and just talking about the nature of undercover work. And she sort of asks, do you ever have trouble remembering who you really are? And he just sort of laughs. And says, Sometimes I remember who I am, <laughs> uh, which is great delivery, but it's, it's a theme that's going to come up later when they revisit uh, some of this in the, in the movie version. But this, this notion of um, there is something like the, the, the nature of his undercover work is steadily like sandblasting uh, the genuine off his character and revealing something else, uh, maybe just an underlying uh, dirtbag crook <laughs> sort mm-hmm. of w- waiting to get out. But that's sort of discomfort with uh, the fact that the role doesn't like come on and off uh, the way it did at the start. And I think Johnson gets that across very, very well. Tubbs never really convinces me as an undercover <laughs> undercover guy. Like, <laughs> is his, it the Jamaican accent? Is that the thing that's throwing you off? <laughs> I was say it. Uh, and the fact that like he's very good at lip syncing, I'll say. But the the fact they're, they're like, how do we show that he's pretending to be somebody else? Uh, he'll lip sync and dance at a strip club, and everyone's going to be like, "Yep, this is this is a drug smuggler." He definitely like I will say that is that is a fun moment when he would sweaty Philip Michael Thomas is just like looks like he's rolling on E and is just having the best time of his fucking life watching this not at all naked stripper just kind of dance around in front of him. It's very it's midday strip club vibes. It's just framed between her thighs Mm -hmm. lip syncing. God, it's such a good. (laughs) <laughs> it's amazing i'm like i'm saying maybe not but very fun yeah like i like i i can't help but uh but love that shit and of course uh in in the midst of all this by the way like michael mann assembles an ensemble cast over the course of his career that you'll see these people again and again and again like mckelty williamson 
uh, is here in this episode as sort of a low level uh, drug runner. He's going to pop up in a bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, Bill Smitrovich, he, who also shows up in a few other things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you're going to you're going to see like these these people like cycling in and out of uh, uh, of man stuff. But uh, yeah, we do, we do get yeah another great moment of, uh, you know, they. OK, so another weird fucking thing, though, this is how weird the show is. I forget this. So at the drug at the drug deal, they bust the, the one guy they busted. They're trying to have him roll on Calderon. And the way they do it, they, they take him to court. And they have they arrange it so that he'll be released, uh, you know, in light of his cooperation with the police. And of course, he hasn't cooperated, but now he's marked as a snitch. But the thing that I forget in all that is right before that, the power out, the power goes out in the courtroom. And we get a little comedy beat where in the darkness, when the lights come back up, every single member of the court is carrying a gun. And has it pointed at the defense table so we can't run off, including the little old lady stenographer. That's Miami Vice, too. Miami Vice sees the bit like, wouldn't this be funny? And it's like, you're like, where the fuck is Leslie Nielsen? When is Leslie Nielsen going to come out? But it does feel like it was one of those things where like someone in there was like, well, it's Florida. So everyone has to carry guns. Right. And then they did the bit and then they realized, like, we can't make this a recurring thing. So they just never really quite go back to that kind of tone of joke about sort of Florida as a larger setting. But it is it is very weird and very jarring in the moment because it's just like you're getting this fairly normal cop procedural up to this point. And then it's just like they said, yeah, it feels like a fucking Zucker Brothers bit. It's it's so weird, but it does at least set us up for this great beach killing scene uh, where uh, Williamson is sort of hiding out, uh, trying to uh, make things right with the with the cartel and and get someone to buy that he's he's not a snitch. And we have Tubbs sort of observing him as he is thinks he's safe, waiting in the most public place he can imagine, uh, which is a waterfront bar uh, along the beach. And he proves not to be um, in part because, again, weird Miami Vice details. (laughs) The weirdly into I Love Lucy, uh, like middleman for Calderon, also proves to be an incredibly gifted cross-dressing assassin. Um. What's weird and about that's, that? Which, which we, we need to point out, not very effective in cross-dressing. No, that's the part effective. they don't 100% get. <laughs> which is really, really funny, given. I'm just like, I'm like come on. This, okay. This is the 80s in Miami. You need to come bring harder than this. Does he, <laughs> does he exceed or fall short of the Tootsie uh, threshold? I'd well, at least Dustin Hoffman got the fucking blending together. Yeah, I'm going to say that it does not meet the Tootsie threshold at all. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, in this setting, he's just a ghost. Just uh, just a uh, <laughs> just a polka dotted phantom uh, who just materializes on the beach, stabs the dude, uh, and then fades away as girls just want to have fun uh, plays in the background. But it's it's such a well-edited scene. Uh, it's, it's terrific stuff and it does sort of, um, sort of return things to, to zero for this. And then in the, the sort of the mystery underlying a lot of this is how is the cartel always a step ahead? And of course it's cause there's a rat in the department. There would have to be. 
And if you're watching it, you realize that there's a character who doesn't really belong here. Uh, that there's a, like there's just a good buddy uh, who used to be with the with the team, used to be Crockett's partner, who's just hanging around a lot. He now works with DEA, uh, but just just a good guy that everyone likes. Everyone likes having around the investigations. But damn, like what's he like? Just in terms of narrative, he's redundant. Unless, uh, and of course, this is this is you know how it does t- uh, end up shaking out. But it does set up one of the more effective moments uh, in the show, which is like once they realize it's him uh, and they they sort of track the the cash payments that have gone to him. Crockett goes to this guy's house uh, to to confront him. They end up having a conversation uh, just out of earshot of his family uh, as he tries to like understand like how his friend ended up doing this and it's like really boilerplate like stuff but i think it's really well handled it is like both and the Mm -hmm. thing is this is some of the best acting don johnson does through any of the series like the part where they're sitting in the car together and he is just smoldering while fucking you know bill smitrovich is just sort of like increasingly you know, like flustered and, you know, like freaking out and just realizing that like his entire life is about to come unraveled. Like both of them play this scene very well, a scene that, like you said, could be done incredibly generically, incredibly, you know, blandly. But both of these actors, like they 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 do something with the material that I feel like is actually very striking. It's one of like the I think the moments in this this pilot that stands out most. They do a really good job also of like bringing in the cops around yes. the car in that yeah. scene, too. It's really effective. Well, and even sort of like literalizing the formation of the new partnership where like all the bridges are severed between mm-hmm. uh, Crockett and his old friend. And as Crockett is starting to lose control of himself in the scene, Tubbs is now there. Uh, they've quietly rolled up and sees the, c- the scene is getting out of hand and like pulls his partner aside, does the Chinatown thing of like, you know, let's get out of here, Jake, basically. Uh, <laughs> but that you you have that moment as well where, like, the sort of the custody of each other's feelings is now transferred. Like, these guys are now in that in that relationship, which is a, a big part of Miami Vice, right? Which is that, like, uh, dudes helping each other have big feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, dudes rock. Yep, they, they certainly do. Uh, and with this with this sort of traitor revealed, we're set up for the final reckoning with Calderon and like the style statement of Miami Vice, which is they are going to drive to this meet. Um, and while they do, we get a montage of them driving in Crockett's Ferrari to Phil Collins in the air tonight. Um, and it's just a lot of like lingering shots of lights glinting off the hubcaps, off the hood, um, and the two guys like you know checking their checking their magazine loads uh, as they as they drive to this meet. Before Crockett makes a quick pit stop at at the phone just to like talk to his wife and be like, "Were we for real?" And she was like, "Yeah, we were." And he needs to know just in case it all goes down wrong, you know. And yet, here I am being like, this rules. It does. It is like, look, for a scene that is so oft parodied and referenced throughout popular culture over and over and over again, you think you go back to it, you know, what, 30 some odd years later and you think, okay, maybe this doesn't hit the same way. But it super does. Like, they earn it throughout the episode. They earn the build up to that moment, to that montage. 
And the song, I mean, look, it's one of the greatest songs ever written. I'm not even, I'm not being ironic in the slightest when I say that. And the way they edited that scene together and shoot it and put it all together with that last, you know, little action sequence at the end. Like, I think it all hits just the way you want it to. I just have to get one thing off my chest, though. <laughs> the flashbacks to Calderon killing Tubbs's brother. Yeah. Couple things. Mm-hmm. Mainly one thing. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, the 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 thing we see again and again is Tubbs running toward his brother as he's getting machine gun. Just machine gun. They like what looks like Josh Charles is mm-hmm. standing there with a, a little like Uzi and just like ventilating him with a with a full clip of SMG rounds. <laughs> and Calderon, the 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 limousine window rolls up and he drives away. And then we see Tubbs cradling his brother like, no, you're dead. What happened to the gunman? Like, did they just like ignore that there was a cop like running up being like, no, like where did lookalike Josh Charles go? No, he just jumped in the East River. It's fine. He had a, he had a go fast boat. <laughs> he, just, he, just, he just drove that thing through the Kiwanis. I mean, there's a few things about that don't make sense. The fact that Tubbs' brother looks like it's his dad. There's also that part. He's so, so. old. He's I was so like, old. That's not your. Was that like a first? Like, is he a stepbrother? Like a like a half brother? Like previous marriage? He's like that man is like sixty years old. That's what being a New York cop does to you, man. <laughs> He's just <laughs> on the streets. Uh, uh, and but I think the the other thing is, um, you know. The extensive use of like location shooting in this, and I think this is probably where like uh, you start seeing man coming into a bit more. Like I do know that he was involved a lot of the location scouting for, uh, especially this pilot, and did a lot to sort of shape the visual uh, like language of the show. But the fact that like all this stuff, they're pretty much always shooting. There's not a lot of like stuff that looks like it's happening on a soundstage. You know, when they are oh, yeah. going to the meet. And uh, he'll repeat repeat this shot of like slowly taking the uh, cigarette boat in between the huge cargo ships, uh, like lining the harbor. Um, sort of trapping this this hallway of of shipping containers is is terrific. Uh, the fact that like night always looks like night. Um, mm-hmm. It it often like I, I don't know like to, to me it it often looks like they are wrestling uh, with the difficulties of location shooting at night. Uh, and I think it gives it a really like vital look, but man, it also does feel like they are struggling to light these scenes. I don't know if it, if it, if it does look like, um, do you think think this is a stylistic choice or do you think they're just like up against it in terms of circumstances and, uh, like time? It feels a lot like um, when I was, you know, like when we were talking about Thief, you know, like there is just this this problem of working at night and not having enough light and having to make do with what you can um, and like trying to turn, you know, your your deficit into a stylistic decision. And it it doesn't always hold up, you know, Um you know, it's it's sometimes it also I think also like the kind of when we transfer over to kind of more modern, you know, like digitization, yeah. it does pick up those flaws a lot more than like, you know, it would have originally. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's 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 a combination of, well, we have to shoot at night 
it's gonna suck you guys but we'll try and make it as aesthetic as possible it is yeah. it is interesting because there's a couple and not to jump too far ahead but there's a couple of bits especially toward the very end of the series like in the credit sequence of the finale where like they do a big montage of shots from the series and they're they clearly did not have an HD transfer of that credit sequence. They were clearly going off the tape that they had cut it together with. And you can kind of see what the series was supposed to look like on SD, you mm-hmm. know, CRT TVs and stuff back in the day. And some of those shots, it's like you can understand. It's like, yes, this was shot for a very specific kind of TV format. And like you said, as soon as you blow it up to 1080p on a Blu-ray set, it's just like, oh, there are things you are not supposed to be seeing here whatsoever. Yeah. And this and this like, you know, culminating shootout you can feel the floods right behind the Mm -hmm. camera trying to light this waterfront like these guys are standing in this like it looks good oh yeah but like they are standing in like this this like pool of light uh that they're trying to desperately throw into uh what's pitch blackness beyond them um and then of course the rest of the shootout goes into that pitch blackness and i do like that they have no hesitation to just be like, you know what? We're going to hold this entire scene together with like a single key light in the darkness and you're just going to get it. It'll be stylish. It'll be You'll like see the, the muzzle flashes. Of- That's all that matters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Yeah. They're right. Sometimes that is all you need. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good shootout. And the thing is, like, this is a series that I think really loves its shootouts and it gets like especially later seasons. It maybe gets a little too in love with them. <laughs> oh, um, God, I can't wait. But like, you know, in the early goings, I feel like there's just enough restraint and just enough budget to not make these scenes look completely chintzy. And this one, I think, you know, like when they are showing that restraint and they are not just fucking giving a guy what is basically a grenade launcher, but pretending it's a shotgun like it's they 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 managed to pull it off. Uh, Yeah. And of course, we get Tubbs squaring off with Calderon and wanting to kill him. And here's the other thing I will say, too, because uh, we barely we only have like a couple lines from Calderon here. We'll we'll see more of him in the episode that ties up his arc. He has a great look as mm-hmm. like evil drug dealer, not actually a very well realized character in any respect. No, he's better when they no. show less. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I could take this guy's cartel away from him like there's just nothing intimidating about him at all. He just seems like kind of a douchebag. <laughs> He's like, like the like bouncer is going to dust him. Uh, well, it's also really funny because that's that's Miguel Pinero. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's just like, what? <laughs> they did him up a little bit. I feel like they gave. I don't know if they gave him a fake nose or if they just did, but they definitely yeah. like put some weird makeup on him. Sorry, what what else would I know him from? Um, well, he, he did some acting, but also he is a really famous playwright. Uh, he was one of the co-founders of the New Yorican Poets Cafe and the New Yorican literary movement. Like, oh, so this is, this is, a, so this is Michael Mann, like reaching out to art school friends, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But he was like, and, and it's again, he was like, you know, uh, kind of like, um, he was, you know, he did time in Rikers, like he was um, in a gang, you know, when he was a kid, like, um, so like he, you know, Michael, it's Michael Mann reaching out to the art school friend who is also like, you know, involved in the world of like crime and law enforcement in some But regards. doesn't necessarily translate it to screens right. effectively. 
I will say it's also very funny that they they establish him as Calderon, and then you know they eventually do do away with him. But by se- time season two rolls around, they decide to just make him a different Colombian drug dealer, also named Esteban. Wait, they just do not. Different, they do. Yeah. In, this, in the second season premiere, he is Esteban Revilla, who is uh, also a drug dealer. Do they do him up really differently? Like, are we not supposed to notice that he's the iconic villain from season one? I definitely noticed. Yeah. No. It's. it's, it's they also bring Bill Smitrovich back for that too. They so bring it was sort a couple of just like, people back, like yeah, God in a couple different times, and they really don't do all that much. I love it. Uh, so you know, it, it, Crockett does the not like this partner, um, and then of course is immediately proven wrong when exactly what Tubbs fears would happen happens, which is they go to collect him from lockup, and he's already made bail, uh, and they get to the uh, boat plane. Yeah, we'll just call it. We'll call it a uh, seaplane. Seaplane. <laughs> I was like, why can't I remember this word? <laughs> uh, they get there just in time for it to watch uh, roll off uh, and, and take off into the night. And they decide, let's be partners. Uh, Tiles, why don't you transfer down here and become an undercover cop? As they drive back uh, across the Keys uh, to to Miami, and we are launched into the series proper. Um, really strong pilot. It it. Like there's a lot of like iconic Miami Vice stuff happening here. I think also it's still a work in progress as they're trying to dial in these characters and some of their themes. And what what struck me is actually it is astonishing. What what sort of caught me off guard was how strong the episode they follow this up with is, Mm -hmm. uh, which is explicitly about that discomfort of being undercover. Um, It's, it is a it's it's an interesting episode. It's it's starring um oh god Ed O'Neill Ed O'Neill, Ed O'Neill. thank you for not making me Al Google. Bundy himself pre Al Bundy can't have a happy home life no he's <laughs> <laughs> just he's just he's just a big horny boy um but but it's like it's it's really an effective episode uh it's it's kind of weird and daring from the start, which is it opens on what feels like a home invasion, uh, like horror sequence before it starts feeling like a cheap porno. And then it turns out to be a cheap porno, mm-hmm. uh, set that they're, that they're watching and they're trying to sort of bust this, uh, like th- this porn ring and like sex trafficking. Featuring a ring. young Susie Amos, who apparently has looked 35 her entire life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Even um, now, like she just she just had one like she was born 35. She will be 35 until the day she dies. And in the middle of this case is, uh, yeah, a, a deep cover agent that people that the FBI fears has like gone over, uh, basically. And it's, mm-hmm. it's Ed O'Neill. And the entire thing hinges on the fact that everything about him appears corrupt. Um, he's not checking in. Uh, he's Ed O'Neill's a very good actor. Is is the thing surprisingly? Yeah, and actually a very effective dramatic actor when he's done that work. And I think here that the manic energy he brings to his comedy roles, he tweaks here to just be like this jangling ball of nerves. He's an unsettling presence in the in the episode, and he's constantly protesting like I've got this all under control, and it is palpably not true, but. You're never sure throughout the episode whether or not he's stringing the cops along uh, or whether he is 
just desperately trying to bring a case together before the entire thing falls apart. It's really gripping. And I think the thing that really makes it sing is that he is this embodiment of Crockett's fears of what he does not want to become. Yeah. 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 It's really well done. And like you said, Ed O'Neill, I think, you know, it's one of those things where like you could see that performance going really, really wrong just based on what you know of Ed O'Neill. But like, He's he's in it like he's very convincing as this character. And I will say this episode has one of my favorite tropes, which will become a uh, regular of the series, which is that everything just kind of ends very abruptly where it's like you get to the end of the episode and, you know, they're like, OK, well, you know, we solved the case. We brought him back in. And it's like, actually, he just hung himself in the bathroom credits. Like, that's it. Like, there really yeah. isn't much of a coda to any of it. It's just like, oh, tragedy. All right, on to the next. And it's just, they really love doing that in this series. God, and, you know, it reminds me of, um, I remember when the movie came out, one of the things against it was, hey, these cops kind of seem like everything just goes to shit on them. Like, nothing ever goes right. And I was sort mm-hmm. of struck by going back to the series, how often that's basically how it plays uh-huh. out. Like, are they good cops? Yeah. Are they effective? Not really. Um, they're sometimes. Yeah. But like frequently it just goes way the fuck wrong, uh, for not good reasons. And there's nothing you can do about it. Like there's no, we can, we can sort of, uh, no, we can, we can get it all back. No. Uh, at the end of the episode, the punchline is going to be all of this was meaningless. Mm-hmm. Freeze frame. But we got the bad guys. So mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and you're right, but the thing is, you know, like, the thing, I feel like the portrayal of Vice in other cop media is always, that is where the dirtbag cops go. We just shove those guys who are not necessarily good enough to be the homicide detectives or, you know, the narcotics detectives, back when they kind of split that out. Vice is just where you go to just, you know, kind of deal in, you know, unseemly stuff, and it's never, like, that high, maybe not as high risk as they portray it to be here in Miami Vice, though I guess, you know, narcotics did not necessarily have its own department at this point. But, you know, these are guys that are just there to kind of be constantly lying to people and trying to trick them into doing stuff. And you can imagine a lot of different ways in which that would go wrong. And while things always do kind of go wrong, the plans they formulate sometimes makes sense like yes this is the thing you would do in this situation but oh this thing went wrong or this person was corrupt what have you also times sometimes their plans are just the dumbest fucking thing you've ever heard in your life and they just go for it and you're along for the ride (laughs) yeah it's uh it's one of those it's one of those things where they i think to the show's detriment sometimes they're often externalizing the dreads of the show. Like Ed O'Neill's mm-hmm. a perfect example here of like, he's an example of what Sonny Crockett is terrified he will become. And this is actually a theme they will return to again and again, uh, that like on some level, he is scared that like, there is no life for him after this assignment. Um, it runs into the reality of, then they start doing slice of life stuff with Crockett that like, obviously the guy has a normal life outside of the nine to five of being Sonny Burnett, but like it's an idea they keep trying to, to play around with, but Ed O'Neill's this, this, this one timer character who's going to come in here and be like, here I am the instantiation of that dread. Uh, and then the bad and unspeakable thing is going to happen to him. Uh, that like you get the sense that even though it turns out he was on the level that, 
as he says, he never could have reintegrated uh, back into his his normal life. And you also get the strong sense that he crossed so many lines in the process of being undercover that, like, as they start picking through his work, uh, you know, he's going to be exposed uh, for a variety of wrongdoings. But they don't do that. So this is the idea of, like, vice cops are surrounded by temptation. Um, you know, it is the sheer amount of money washing through uh, the drug trade. It is the sheer amount of, uh, like, personal vice that you almost have to indulge in to sort of fit into the scene. Uh, and then, yes, like, in terms of, like, the vice, the, the other part of the vice brief, uh, you know, dealing with, uh, like, sex crimes, sex trafficking, there are those temptations as well where you're dealing with, like, vulnerable people. And, again, if you're undercover, you're inhabiting a world of, uh, like dirtbags and abusers. All of this. Think- oh. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say like <laughs> all this stuff is a, usually it is, is transferred onto external characters outside the squad. Right. But one of the other things that's interesting is like, we, this is kind of like, it does set up like, you know, we have the, the, the homicide cops who, you know, the job gets to them and they become traumatized and insular and like very dark and brooding. And like, you know, they can't get the blood off of their hands. Whereas the, the we have like the the depiction of like vice where it's like normally it's like oh no they become corrupt they you know they take on the corruption themselves and they start taking bribes they start living you know driving fancy cars and shit like that and like sending their kids to expensive private schools so on and so forth and like but with with Ed O'Neill's character we actually get the no 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 it's bad and it is like kind of infected him and he is just become like he no longer can like return to society because he's been so corrupted by this but he's not like taking money and putting his wife up in like a a nice house or anything like that she's not driving a fancy car no he's completely detached from it because his internalization of the job has just like just completely depleted him well and god i forgot this one scene where they're dealing with one of the guys that like they're trying to sting basically this uh like porn producer the, the sort of black market porn producer magnate um and the scene goes from fun night out with the gang to just explosive violence at the drop of a dime yeah and it reminds me a lot of donnie brasco uh mm-hmm. which i think is one of the best films on this topic um but the fact that all of them can't intervene while this like not even like a crime lord in that sense. Like he is like he's running a major criminal enterprise, but ultimately like he's like a he's an illegal video producer. In, the, in the organization. Yeah. But like they just have to stand by and watch as he beats the ever living shit out of somebody. And then gear shift. Let's go back to dinner and, and finish up our good night out. Um, And that's just the the shifts they have to make. And yeah, like to, to your point, Dia, like that's it, it's not just the like the the creature comforts and luxuries that, that have gotten Ed O'Neill, it's inhabiting this like miasma of corruption and having to be complicit in an awful lot of it before you ever do the thing where it's like mask off. I was a cop all along and now you're all going to jail. I think the other interesting thing is that like um, kind of contrasting that with Bill Smithovich's character from the pilot you know, with that, we get the setup of if he's got the wife and he's got the kids and he's got the happy life and he's got the partner, you know, like it's, it's, he's got this, you know, there's a lot there to lose. 
Whereas, and then normally we would set that up with Ed O'Neill's character. Like if we did this now, Ed O'Neill's character is the one who's got all this stuff to lose. He's got something to go home to and he can't. But here it's just kind of, he's got his wife, mm-hmm. you know, he's like very just kind of basic wife that he's not connected with right now. And like, they're, they're not really, you know, it's like, what's, what do they, like, they really don't show anything for Ed O'Neill to go back to in the first place, which is really an interesting choice because, you know, oh, it's like, okay, well, you know. He doesn't have a life to go back to, but here he's like over here with his, you know, undercover work. Fine. He's he's wearing to the job, really. But like, no, like, you know, he does have something of a life, but it's just so just kind of detached and minimized in this episode. Like you can see very easily how the artifice becomes like a thing that he latches onto, not just because of the work, but because he just can't even identify with the thing that he would potentially go back to anymore. Right. And I think this is this reminds me of um so I was watching one of my favorite movies, uh, The Spiral Staircase. It's like a 1946 uh, like suspense horror film. But I was watching the commentary and uh, got to forget who the film academic was on it. But she's making this argument that post-war, there's this wave of films that examine like psychology. There's like all these like psychological crime and suspense and horror films. Like Hitchcock is probably the most famous, but like there's a ton of like A oh, and yeah. B pictures examining like uh like psychodrama um in in a in a <clears throat> like in in the context of like crime and her argument is this is one of the ways you see a society dealing with a massive influx of PTSD uh sufferers in a time where they can't really speak where like therapy isn't really uh widely adopted practice where talking about these issues is not uh, really normalized or mainstream. And so you have this wave of pictures uh, like where society is trying to process like this notion of sometimes a mind just can't get it back together after, after traumatic events. But it, it, it looks at all this through the context of like crime pictures and suspense tales. And cause that's as close as they can get to addressing these things that really only surface briefly in films like uh, the best years of our lives. And I think one of the things that maybe makes man so appealing in a, throughout a lot of his era is that to a degree, yes, these are these are dudes rock uh, like shows. But I think also there is an awful lot of like he's taking these heightened circumstances and his approach to realism does make it so that clearly he is making movies and TV shows about like cops and robbers, cops and crooks. But on the other hand, I think the reason it achieves such wide resonance is that so much of his work centers on this notion of what does it mean to be a good man uh, in, in America specifically uh, in, in this era. And I think this is like one of the, like he's examining all this stuff through the lens of these sort of heightened cop procedural uh, scenarios. But a lot of it does turn on this sense of like, what are you supposed to do when your sort of normal idyllic life just feels like nothing? where it doesn't have any, where you have no connection to it or affinity for it. Um, what do you do then? Miami Vice doesn't have answers, but it does understand like sort of the, the quiet desperation of that. And I think this is like man examines this theme through a lot of different lenses over the years. But I think this is something he circles around, which is that on some level, this is a way of talking about, the shittiness of normal, like everyday life while making it feel cool and yeah. like transgressive. 
while while applying a heavy stylized filter to it to make it more palatable for you know a generation of people who are there for the excesses. Yeah, I think like I think to an extent we we are all like dreading that on some level we might be Ed O'Neill, right? Where right. Just like one day you're like, I have no connection to any of this. See, it's funny you say all this because, you know, yes, you're right. I think all those aspects are definitely there. The problem is that they have to do this for 22 episodes a season. <laughs> and so at a certain point, the themes you're talking about, and the things they are trying to get across with these characters kind of get diluted by the fact that you are trying to fill 22 episodes per season uh, for like five straight years. And at well, a certain point, they kind of have to get away from the actually interesting stuff and just yep. like, here's your guest star cavalcade and wacky shit. I cannot. So we'll get to that because I think it, before the season is out, there is an episode that I was like, guys, we got to watch this one. And I was wrong, but I was also right because <laughs> it was an episode I remembered as being good. It was terrible, but okay. it's really instructive. However, Let's get to the Calderon's return thing, because that's a yes. two-parter that puts a bow on the whole Calderon arc. You can clear, you can tell at some point they decided they thought Calderon was going to be a bigger thing, and then they were just like, yeah, what if he wasn't? Well, and, and also, but the thing is, I will say, like, these are, this is a strong arc. This first part of the two-parter is one of the best episodes of Miami Vice I've seen. Like it, oh, and it's it's definitely better than the second half for sure. Fucking yeah. rules, Ludovici Armstrong, my friends. <laughs> what a name! What an assassin! What a guy who kind of looks like Roger Daltrey. He does. Yeah, you know, I was trying to figure it out the entire time I watched it. Yeah, you're right. I really thought it was him, too. But no, it's the guy in Manhunter who uh, walks Will on the, the test run of his yeah, he you walks, know, the sting. Yeah. He's a marksman, apparently. Like, he's a, a trained marksman who is, like, a competitive marksman. Right. That's like man in the commentary being like, this guy can actually do all this shit. Uh, yeah. He's a stuntman. doesn't get to do it as often as he'd like. Um, <clears throat> so... I fucking love this episode because it starts, first of all, it's a misdirection. It starts with just some, uh, like, dealing with the fallout of Crockett and Tubbs divorce. And they're on the courthouse steps. Again, cool use of location. And they sort of, like, both, they're, they're bickering, uh, you know, uh, you know, ambulance chaser lawyers are, are both trying to get in the middle of, of their marriage and their relationship with their kid. And, and Crockett and his wife are like, you know what? Fuck these guys. Uh, let's make it work, baby. <laughs> and they reconcile uh, and they, they go home and, and have hot, uh, you know, reconciling married people sex. Mm -hmm. But it's all in the context of uh, people are going to get, start getting whacked left and right over the course of this episode. Because the other thing that's happening is everyone's on the stakeout at this uh, hotel watching um, like crooks waiting to make a deal. And again, all kind of boring cop procedural stuff, just like killing time, uh, you know, ogling women by the pool, uh, but mostly just being like a bunch of cops being bored out of their minds until the scene just explodes into violence um, with a really memorable hit. Like uh, these two douchebags we've been following around the entire morning. They go in their little uh, limousine and they just get like shotgunned inside of it. Cop with, rolls with up the most powerful shotgun you have maybe ever seen circa 1984. Just opens that car up like a can opener. <laughs> yeah. 
Might be the same car from the from the previous episode. <laughs> uh, I feel like I see that limousine like all they the time. They got some good use at it up until that point. <laughs> uh, but he, so they, they discover that Calderon is coming back to Miami and he's settling all the scores. And so like partly there's a here we are. He's doing the collateral thing. He's got a hitman who over the course of a single like day or two days is trying to wipe out all the cartel's enemies uh, in Miami. And then also Crockett's on the list and they have to move his family into protective custody. And so we're going to do the manhunter thing Mm -hmm. of his family being swept in. And the thing is, it hits. Mm -hmm. And you know why? Jan Hammer. Yeah. What what a guy. What a sound. What a I'm sorry. I can't like... I would like the scene first of all, like the scene of him and his wife on this beach as they sort of wait in this limbo for like this to blow over. Yet another Michael Mann shirtless dad on the beach with his family ruminating on the darkness that surrounds them scene. Like just a I I love them when they happen and this is another good one. But I think we have to appreciate Crockett's Crockett's theme uh by Hammer and I think we'll we'll play a little excerpt Uh, from from the scene from the scene right here So the things that, the things I love about it is the score is really good uh like the 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 shot is is beautiful the sort of sense of like the distance uh, on the beach I also just love that they're trying to make it work like I I the thing I the thing I dig about this is that genuinely uh at, at this point in the story his wife is trying to be a trooper about all this. She is trying to like not not let this not let this uh, rattle her. But by the end, of course, it will just be too fucking much. That obviously, like this is just uh, like way too much insanity uh, boiling into their lives. But I, I love this moment of the, the family sort of coming together and for for a moment here being a strong family unit in in the face of this. Even though we kind of know this is doomed, the the soundtrack is kind of telling you this. Um, that like Crockett's path is mm. a solitary one. The man must walk alone. God help me. I love it. And then dude, I, I love the set. Like every beat here works the whole setup to try to smoke out the assassin. Um, you know, the way in which rules. it very much does not work. Yeah. But a great nightclub scene. One of the best in a series that is replete with them. And when they do finally get around to the point where it's like the breaking point and the explosion of violence and, you know, the the moment in Crockett's house where the dude just has a fucking Uzi like it is one. You understand why that was too much. And two, it's like it's genuinely like it's a, it's an actually terrifying action sequence. It's a moment where like the gunplay doesn't just feel like, 
a bunch of guys shooting, you know, squibs at a or, you know, shooting blanks at a camera like it is. It feels like there's a tension there that I feel like a lot of the other gunplay in the series does not have. Yeah. And I think the like a thing that they do that I love is that the gunman inhabits this negative space in the frame that he like, you know, it's it's it shots down like a dark hallway basically yeah. is where he's lurking. Um, and then the fact this whole scene, yeah, is going to be lit up by muzzle flashes uh, and exploding drywall. Um, it's it's terrific. It's it's one of the and it's claustrophobic. Um, we've seen that set a couple times over the course of the series, and it there's just no space in it at all. Uh, I also have to crack up. This this happens routinely. You have Crockett and Tubbs doing a whole thing, but then the whole Vice Squad is like nearby. Also, they're just out of frame. Also <laughs> here, uh, so when the when the gunman evades Crockett and Tubbs and runs out, literally the entire Miami Dade uh, Sheriff's Department is there, just in a firing squad, and just yeah, they, and they all have their different guns. We say we say runs out. No, he shoots his way out of a window. Yeah. Which is important to a lineup, like just like, you know, just a straight up lineup of cops with guns. Again, just where's Leslie Nielsen? I know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It's a great uh, episode. And it like the thing it sets up, I wish was as good as the setup was. But like it is an incredible setup for getting eventually getting rid of Calderon. Yeah, it's problem is the second half of this has to reside on uh, Philip Michael Thomas. Yes. (laughs) And also a really ill-conceived, like, romantic subplot. Like, oh my god, it's unreal. So it's so bad. Oh, my God. It's, it's a mixture of things. It is, so it, it, the setup is they go to uh, the Bahamas, an island where supposedly Calderon is holed up. They encounter a woman who turns out to be Calderon's daughter, who I'm going to say is not a great actress. Uh, and up until the end, they don't ask her to do a whole lot, which is fair enough. But by the time they get to the end and sort of Tubbs and her are screaming at one another on the beach about how her father had a cop killed and it was my brother. And she's just like holding her head and just screaming. Oh, God, it is one of the worst acted scenes I have maybe ever seen in my life. It is terrible. That um, the scene where she's where they where where, where Calderon is finally killed and she's screaming no. Mm -hmm. And it's just the loud, like, you know, almost clipping, you know, Um, I was watching on the NBC app on my phone and it cut to a commercial in the middle of her <laughs> screaming no. And so it was just, nah! the new chicken, you know, chicken sandwich at McDonald's. And, it's just, and then it cuts back into, oh, the so only fun. part of that entire sequence, that entire episode, the only part that works is the weird slow slide that Calderon oh, does just, into the back of When he sense. dips his head back in the pool, yes. you, see, you see him have the thought, have I sold this sufficiently? Yes. No, I'm going to really go for it. And his head drops further back <laughs> into the it's, pool. God. It's beautiful, oh, so. terrible. Uh, the whole episode is a mess. Like the whole Bahamas subplot makes no fucking sense at all I, but i like, love the inciting thing for this so it's just like you know the bahamas is only 60 miles away we could just go just there like, we got a boat why not and then oh god and and so again it's a moment a moment man loves we'll revisit it again but like you know what's cool just going with your partner on a on a go fast boat oh uh, yeah it is yeah, to 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 go fight crime uh, in in the islands. I was like, that does look fucking awesome. 
Um, yeah, also, just the problem is the problem is everything they do on the island once they get there. I think the the thing that actually works best for me actually is the um the weird resort bartender that they end yes. up running into. <laughs> there is so there's a version of this that I think like it was just Crockett going to settle up the score. I think there's a weird crime epic like finale happening here where he's just ending up in like a mix of. Like I love this guy, like th- this this bartender who's like on this long weekend, right? Like he is played, inter- played by he- Glenn from Raising Arizona, by the way, like a, a character actor who shows up regularly throughout the eighties and nineties. Well, it cracks me up when he, when he's like he's working on his novel, and they're like, "Well, do you have anything to read for us?" And he oh he quotes Old Man in the Sea, and everyone's like, "That fucking rules!" Wow, I didn't know you had that in you. And he's like, "That's nah, Hemingway." Um, My book's gonna be like that, but it's got all this other stuff in it too. <laughs> oh, it's so good. That's like that is terrific. But we gotta like yeah. So the way to get to Calderon though is gonna be through his daughter, and it's going to be through Tubbs, uh, like courting her, getting like getting yeah. in with her uh, as uh, as a boyfriend, and the entire thing is a disaster. Like it's a disaster because again, this all takes place over like two days. Two and days. And by the time he gets to like the part, like the big, like pre culminating moment, he's talking to Croc. He's like, I really care for this woman. You have known her for exactly 16 hours at this point. It's, and there's a part where, so after like they finally sleep with each other, afterwards, finally, her saying, (laughs) Yeah, right. We hear her saying, You know, I feel like sometimes there's, you go places where I can't go. Uh, Where do you, where do you go, Ricardo? And I'm like, probably to sleep. Like, yeah, I, I don't know. Again, 16 I've been hours. here for like an hour. <laughs> yeah. Like th- you are now in the third hour of your acquaintanceship. Like uh, what? Yeah, it's, it's a this- baffling subplot. And it is it is it is unfortunately saddled with again. Philip Michael Thomas does some things on this show very well. This part where he is trying to like, you know, exude all the pain and the, you know, the anger that he has about his brother's death to this woman who is just not able to match his intensity whatsoever. It is, well, and it that's is thing, like, ill-conceived. Bad material, bad casting, like, will make anyone look like a schmuck. Thomas can't rise above it in, no. the, in this. Like, yeah. and, I, and I think, like, Don Johnson moments can. Um, but, he, yeah, he can't, he can't pull it out. This episode is, is kind of a mess after that amazing first parter. Uh, the final showdown with Calderon... Uh, yeah, I don't. Again, it I barely happens. Like it's just there's some guys with guns, and then she walks in, and then Tubbs walks in, and it's just like guns firing, people die, and then it's just kind of over. Well, and you get Panero trying to make the case, um, trying to make the the argument that like there's just too much too much money involved in all of this for for any of this to make a difference, right? Like I'm too big, the the business is too big, like you're nothing, you're no one. But it, the, the scene has no room to breathe. Everything there's just too much happening here, and they've never fleshed out this character. Uh, so yeah, he he dies, and then the um, the thing I can't get over is that with all of this having happened, they're like, you know, I think we owe ourselves a victory lap. And so as they boat back to Florida, which is just the same shot we saw earlier is they're heading to the Bahamas shot from the other side of the <laughs> boat. So they're going in a different direction. So you know, they're going in a different the direction. Street. Yes. Yeah. 
we get the montage of all the shit that's happened in this episode as they sort of just like get lost in in, in th- thoughts about this this two parter. It's so weird. The montages that work in this series are great. The ones that don't are pure comedy, and I feel like this is border borders on the pure comedy. Like it just they it's not the editing. It's just that like you're supposed to think that any of these things that happened were important, and very little of it actually resonates at all. Never mind that they also just like oh by the way your chief is dead, like your lieutenant's dead. That that happened off kind of off screen after he got shot in the last episode. So it's just like okay. Like, it's just they're just trying to rush through so much here. It feels like this was supposed to be an entire season arc that they condensed down. And Paul to a Michael Glass is just not up to snuff with that. No. Look, we we needed to get make room for, uh, you know, Edward James Olmos. We which no argument on my part on that. Yeah. in that regard, dude, I think so much of the show's reputate, like the presence he brings to a lot of the show, like that, that weird that weird comedy vibe we've talked about. Eddie is not here for that in any no. scene. <laughs> and I love it. It's like he is, he is doing his best to save Miami vice from itself in places. He is just boiling underneath. You can tell at all times. And it's in, in a lesser actor's hands. That character is unbearable, but I think almost he pulls it back just enough to where it doesn't come off as like he's about to snap at any moment. It's just like, no, this is just who this dude is. He does not exude. He does not project unless he absolutely has to. And he's not here for the bullshit. And then we get a little flavor flavor of this in uh, the first of our sort of amazing. What are you doing here? Uh, castings. Bruce Willis appearing in no exit uh, as a. Wife beating stinger missile salesman. Um, and one of like it, it's kind of a, an opportunity for uh almost as Castillo to sort of establish that, that he is a veteran of law enforcement in sort of South Florida and Latin America and is firmly aware of all the like cross priorities that typify this. Uh, and so as this case gets out of hand he starts to get a weirder and weirder vibe about like how it's actually going to play out in the end, which is uh spoiler alert. It's going to be a Lord of war situation where the arms dealer exists because it behooves like CIA to let him exist. But I will like, what did you make of all this? Cause it's such a, it's just weird to see Bruce Willis pop up uh, in, in roles like this at this moment. I mean, this is like pre moonlighting. So he was still relatively, new in his I mean he'd been acting I think since like the late 70s but I think this is like one of the more like higher profile things he had done up to this point and you're immediately struck by the fact that that's just Bruce Willis like it's not he's not really doing a character it's just kind of Bruce Willis being 80s Bruce Willis yeah again like this sort of latent asshole vibes in a lot of his performances he just leans all the way into here but I think the thing that makes it work honestly is um you know, the thing they they're here to investigate something completely different. They're here to investigate, uh, you know, an, an arms deal. And what they end up having a front row seat to is this horribly abusive marriage. And again, this notion of standing off to the side and watching something happen. To what degree are you then sort of implicated in it? 
Um, right. And I think this is actually really well handled. The fact that they, uh, the the scene aboard uh, the surveillance boat where they sort of parked it, uh, you know, in the bay off this guy's mansion, and they're seeing uh, just a horrible argument and uh, like beating take place, and all of them sort of like looking or all the cops looking around each other, like. Try, like somebody trying to say like somebody start looking for somebody to say it like we got to do something about this and all of them also knowing that like that's not what they're here to do um and then we get the twist of they learn that she's setting up a hitman to kill right. bruce willis this is their way in uh to sort of expose the deal and it culminates in the case being made they bust the guy but that miami vice like sudden ending the feds show up and they're like, you have to release him because we need him out on the street. And that's when she shows up with a gun and we don't see the end. We just hear, we hear Crockett being like, no. And then gunshot. Um, and then Miami vice theme. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an abrupt. And like, the thing is, like you said, it's, it's, it's a well for a heavy subject that could be dealt with very badly on this show. And is, I think dealt with worse in, in later episodes, they do an okay job. I think of making, you know, not lingering too heavily on the violence while, you know, not trying to like turn into a sort of a salacious thing, but you know, like it, it's like you said, it's the cynical ending of like, actually the government needs this guy. He knows too many people. He can get us in with these groups. So we're going to use him, but then cut away gunshot, you know, onto the next. And there's like, I said, there's a lot of that in this series. Like it feels like, by nature of the fact that these are 48 minute episodes, they want to tell more interesting stories than they can because they have to make a Miami Vice episode out of it eventually. And by the time they get around to wrapping up to what they want to do, like they just they realize they're kind of out of time and they're just like, all right, well, we got to get it to the next plot. Did y'all have a chance to check out Smuggler's Blues? I did. Yeah. What did y'all think of it? Hmm. Do you, you want to take this one first? <laughs> Well, it's funny because this is around the time I started getting really sick of Don Johnson. Because mm-hmm. I was just like, you know what? We'll just we'll just watch. We'll just watch. I've never watched the show. I'll just go through. But around like, you know, 15 hours of Don Johnson, I was just kind of like, I think I actually hate this guy. Um, just as a general person. Um, and so that definitely started bleeding into my appreciation of uh, the show. But. I think the thing is like the, the 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 where it ends is such a weird place for me. It's just like you know, like oh, a cop could turn out to be bad. Again. Money is powerful, and it's just like uh huh. Like it just. <sighs> I think- I feel like we wouldn't be talking about this episode were it not for the fact that Glenn Fry is in it. Like yeah, I feel like that's kind of where I'm at with it. Like yeah, it's the whole thrust of the thing is that like it's the Glenn Fry episode. Like it's the song Smuggler's Blues, it's him in his Hawaiian shirt being the dirtbag pilot. But like also I couldn't tell if maybe at some point they thought they were going to bring that character back because he it gets feels shot. Like it. If yeah, it, it 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 feels like it, this is this is going to be supposed to be a like you know a recurring thing. Like we're yeah. we're planting a thread here that we will like kind of weave around when we need to but never happens. <laughs> Yeah, it never quite happens. And it's just like there's an 80 yard line of like, I'm OK, but like you never see the character again. And so <laughs> it, it felt like they were like, we've got something with Glenn. We're going to try and turn this into something. And they just never do it. Like, so interestingly enough, I 
I think there's parts of it that work really well. And I think the parts of it that work really well probably are where Pinheiro's writing is carrying it. But he's the he's the writer on this episode. Yeah. And there's a few conversations that do feel almost like stage play uh, in, in terms of how they play out. And I think those are probably the best moments in the show. And I think these are moments that end up being revisited when this is remade into a film. Um, but like for me, everything about arranging the deal down in Colombia, uh, all of it's good. The actual part where they're trying to bust up this kidnapping ring. This is the weird, this is the weird thing. The conceit of the episode is so they're trying to bust up a kidnapping ring that is taking like smugglers, kidnapping their significant others, extorting them for a ton of cash and then killing everyone. Uh, you know, rather than sort of releasing anyone unharmed, that's what they're trying to break up. But it's kind of a preposterous deal. Um, and so that part doesn't really hang together. But to expose it, yeah, Crockett and Tubbs have to go down to Columbia, posing as as smugglers with Glenn Fry, and I, yeah, I think that's the thing that that like um, I think whenever they have to leave Miami, the show falls apart for me. Yeah, I'm trying to think of an example where it doesn't, and I can't think of one. Like every That's, episode like, that I watched, where they they end up leaving Miami, with the exception of New York. I feel like New York is yeah. the one place they can go where it doesn't get fucked up. But like anywhere south of of Florida, they try to go well, yeah, to what's, like it just it goes off the rails. Yeah, it's it's a really weird thing too because it's like you know, it's like you know you're really not changing anything, but like for some reason, whenever they have to expand beyond the scope of the United States, it's just like well, now it's all fucked. Yeah, I, I think like there's parts of it. Like I, I love the guy they end up dealing with down in Colombia, uh, where they have the meeting in his nightclub and they're seething at how all of this has unfolded. The way he's sort of used the cops to sort of vet them, um, and they they have a sort of great encounter uh, where he gives this performance where he's he's basically arguing uh, that. He is fully prepared to die for no good reason other than like hurt feelings. Everyone's pissed and, and armed, but also that would get in the way of everyone making money. So what is he to fear? Uh, because ultimately everyone's going to be reasonable, but it's up to you if you're not going to be. Uh, it's a it's it's a great sequence. Uh, I think. I will say uh, it, it cracks me up the way they introduce Glenn Fry in this where they go to his aircraft hangar and he's just rocking out. Um, playing a a rock guitar that you never hear on an Eagles track. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's what I'll say. It's like, <laughs> hey, where'd this guy go? He sounds all right. <laughs> yeah, Glenn Fry. I, I, like many of the other musicians who make guest stars on on this series, better actor than you think he's going to be. They don't ask him to do a whole lot, but he he holds his own in the scenes. And I will say that I am a much bigger fan of Glenn Fry's solo output than I am any Eagles song ever. Like, You Belong to the City is a great fucking song. Yeah. The Heat is on. Great fucking song. Smuggler's Moves, maybe a little less, but like, you know, it works for the episode. It's fine. It, it's it's his attempt to write like a topical, like, Nothler-esque narrative epic of of the of the moment. Doesn't quite carry through. But but anyway, they'll narrate the the show to it. Uh, they're like, Smuggler's Blues, awesome song. We'll just make it the the episode. What would we give the Smuggler's Blues? Uh, having having wife their kidnapped wife and kidnapped and blown up. And blown up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that would give me the blues. Uh, I, the thing I do love in this episode, unequivocally, though, is um, the snap to, like, 
dry, scary proceduralism of them trying to defuse the bomb in the trailer. Right. The way that everything slows down and it just becomes that 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 bomb tech, right? Basically takes over the scene as he just starts narrating for everyone, like, here's what I'm doing, here's why, everyone be calm. And here the the performers do genuinely everyone seems legitimately terrified. This scene will be recreated in the film. Uh but I kind of love the the gear shift where as heightened as the show can be at times where people turn into like action hero versions of themselves. Here we see everyone sort of powerless in this situation and is just trying by the, the skin of their teeth to hold it together. Um, and that's, yeah. that's really well handled. Um, it's emotionally the climax of the episode. Unfortunately, the actual climax of the episode is tubs jumping off a bridge onto a speedboat and whooping up on a dirty cop. Yes, a cop who was introduced in an early scene for one moment and then never seen again until the end of the episode because he's the big bad. And it's like, eh, it just, I don't, I didn't care about this character when he was in that scene. I don't care about him now. So, so I also made everyone watch Nobody Lives Forever. Yes, you did. Yeah, you did. I don't blame you for making us do that. I think it's an instructive episode of Miami Vice. What is it instructing us, Rob? Yes, I'm I'm going to need a little elaboration on that. When this show misses, the ways in which it misses, uh, the limited understanding it has of 80s culture and subcultures uh, is really profound. So, So Nobody Lives Forever, in my memory, is an episode where... A gang of just dead end uh, like thugs are just on a rampage and Crockett is no longer in a place where he can deal with it because he is in danger of becoming happy uh, via a relationship with uh, it's Kim Grice, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, From from Manhunter uh, playing a uh, like architect girlfriend of his who's like curious about his world but clearly is of a different world and his like falling in love with her uh means he can't be the guy he needs to be to work vice with tubs and it ends up being a thing where because he's distracted he ends up letting tubs down tubs gets the ever living shit kicked out of him and it's sort of like encapsulating like why this guy can't be happy like why this is just not on the table for these characters this is my memory of it is it's like Mm -hmm. a all these interpersonal tensions what i didn't remember was the drama club gangsters (laughs) who were at the center of this thing oh my god they are incredible they are less convincing than like the gangsters in the Big Lebowski, but it is a similar energy. Yeah, in I was term- say like this is before they discovered nihilism, right? <laughs> that's a, that's why I could. I was sitting there. It's like it's it's the it's the nihilist gangster. It's the, the it's the nihilists. <laughs> like I can't the. The way it opens, by the way, their their musical <laughs> cue. We need to talk about the fucking car. <laughs> Oh my god, the car. The car. So the way it opens is they are driving around Miami listening to Bad to the Bone. As all the teens did. And I can't they're they're driving around in a 
a uh, like huge convertible. What what which which co- I don't know what convertible they're driving, but it's it a doesn't Plymouth matter. GTX. But you see, as they're sort of starting shit on the highway and recklessly driving and like pointing guns at people, uh, they go to the beach and we get we get a shot of their car. Uh, and we'll include this in the show notes. I posted a picture of it on Twitter, but just to refresh <laughs> everyone's memory, um, they have spray painted in pink letters, death, the ultimate high intercapped, of course, to show that mm-hmm. they really just don't give a fuck. And without the E, cause it's the yes. ultimate. Yep. And there's, uh, the, we, gotta, we gotta remember the dash after death. Yep. And then exclamation point. Yeah. This is what and, the 80s were like, man. This is just like, this is what the youth was all about. This is what Ronald Reagan did to these motherfuckers. I, like, it's so weird. This The show, like, we talked about like, the soundtrack is, is fucking awesome and everything. And then this show, like, turns its normie gaze toward punk. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, no. You just don't know what's going on. Like, you, you, is, you completely missed it. It's especially jarring because later on they do wield some punk bands on the soundtrack pretty well. Like X is on there. Like they 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 dig into you know some of the punk catalog for in better uses. But for these punk teens, they're like George Thorogood and the Destroyers. Right? This is this is who these kids are listening to. And just their costuming, like it's a mishmash of different like punk subcultures that they're throwing together in there as well. Like where two it's- of them are the kids that the Terminator mercs uh, at the beginning <laughs> of the Terminator to get his trench coat. It's so like one's got a little trilby. Yeah. Um, there's it's just it's a disaster, and they're the least threatening group of dudes. Like in like if they weren't wielding guns, they would just be cartoons. It's such it's it's a disaster. And the entire episode is like the thing that makes them scary is, of course, they got nothing to lose. In fact, like uh, like one of their informants is going to warn them that like, hey, man, these guys are different. Like these guys just don't give a shit. And like, are you able to meet them uh, on their terms? And now I'm looking at it's like, (laughs) again, I think we got them. Two things about this episode for me. One, I think you're greatly underselling its importance because clearly it was the 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 blueprint that Christopher Nolan used for writing The Dark Knight. It's the same plot. It's about a you know a guy oh who's too, he's dealing oh too much God. with like I'm sorry, it is like he's he's a guy who's like trying to figure out if he can put himself into a normal life again. But there's this whole chaos agent out there doing this shit that's just like ruining everything. And if he doesn't focus entirely on destroying these agents of chaos. You know, he has to put his real life to the side to do it. Literally, Christopher Nolan stole this plot is what I'm saying Two, the montage in this episode is an absolute all timer and maybe not for the best reasons. But the part where after Tubbs gets beat up and almost <laughs> just steely eyed looks at Crockett dead in the eyes like I have some paperwork for you to do. And then that results in Crockett going out on his boat for a while to have a sad to the song heartbeat from Manhunter. Yes. Uh, yep. While they keep intercutting footage of all, Edward James almost staring you, the viewer, dead in the fucking eye. It is art. It is the most art they have maybe put into any episode up to this point. It doesn't completely work, but I love it. <laughs> I like I like the when they when they when they put dump the ketchup and shit on Izzy's shoes. Oh Fuck. god. <laughs> They're so mean. They're so mean. The most punk shit. 
Also, John Carroll Esposito is there for a minute, just, you know, kind of showing up as yeah, one of right? like the low level gangsters. Like he's just there to get shot. <laughs> it's what a weird episode. You know, the other thing is, uh, it is man channeling one of his uh, fears in crime films, which is the losers holding up gas stations with a born to lose lose tattoo. Uh, like this is this is them. Cowboy scores. Yeah, uh, the, this is the this is the. Uh, man antagonist version of crook which is it does make you realize how lucky we are wayne grow worked out as well as he did in heat Look, um you, you got to try some things before you eventually get to the real <laughs> shit and they tried some things here they didn't get there but eventually and again as we'll learn when we watch la takedown they didn't get wayne grow right the first time either but it took you know what eventually they got there and then there's just uh, like there's one i want to talk about from, from season two uh okay. which i think is like out where the buses don't run, mm-hmm. um, where I think it's like the highs and lows of Miami Vice, just all crammed into one. Like it is totally the series' greatest strengths. I think mean, it like maybe the best stuff I saw in our revisit. Some was from this episode, and then some of the weirdest energy. Just some grade A dumb shit in this episode. So it opens. Uh, first of all, it's a movie. That's, it is a it is an episode that's entirely tied together by soundtrack. Whether or not it makes any real justifiable sense or not, it opens with the coolest drug dealer in 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 Miami. Uh, just listening to Baba O'Reilly as he rollerblades along uh, the beachfront. And he's got the bandolier of cassette tapes mm-hmm. draped over his drapes across his chest and like. Yeah, he's wearing the booty shorts mm-hmm. and he's he's meeting his, uh, you know, his, his middlemen or his clients uh, who are also dressed in just amazing, like skin tight 80s exercise gear. Uh, it's it's just an, just the vibes are incredible as as we follow this guy along the along the uh, the waterfront and Crockett and Tubbs are sort of monitoring the entire situation. Um, it just, it cracks me up. Like, and none of this goes anywhere. This entire sequence is just to set up that they're being watched by someone else, uh, that they're being observed. You also completely forgot the part where little Richard is there preaching during all of this while Bob O'Reilly is underneath him. Like it is just, they really are just delivering the energy in this opening that completely shifts after they get away from it. But like little Richard, he's there. Look how happy he is. Well, and then weird comedy beat where this drug dealer, when he's busted, goes, grabs a gun, tries to take one of the like nuns hostage. Who's probably part of this ministry or whatever. She beats the shit out of him. um, And then like Crockett has to save him from just getting wrecked uh, by the the, (laughs) by one of the members of this ministry. While while little Richard looks on approvingly. I also enjoy the cut to little Richard at his little um like keyboard at the point where the keyboard really like the keyboard solo kicks on and Bob O'Reilly with the brief implication that in fact it's diegetic sound uh-huh. and mm-hmm. that little Richard's ministry of rock is bringing the word to the people of Miami Beach. Well, it attracts too because I think they're using a live version of the song. So it's like extra crowd energy around it. I mean, it's a great, it's a fucking great performance. Yeah. Like the problem is it's corny and excessive, but also like 
it brought me to like my attention as I'm watching it, where it's like, okay, what's going on here? The answer was nothing much. Uh, but don't care. The entire thing serves to introduce Hank Weldon, played by another man regular, uh, Bruce McGill, who's pretty much always like strong, like in everything he he shows up in for man, at least good character actor. Um, but maybe this is one of his weirdest turns. Yes. Like how do we describe Hank Weldon here? I would say the Looney Tunes portrayal of a guy who has gone over the edge. Yes. Yeah. Literally to the point where I think he is quoting Bugs Bunny a couple of times during the course of this. I couldn't track all the impressions he's doing. I'm like, would people in the 80s have gotten all of these? Because it does feel like he's doing Looney Tunes impressions of like, oh, yeah, this Peter Lorre would have killed in the 1940s. I'm not sure it plays in the 80s, but he's doing it. Yeah. Um, he loves Treasure Sierra Madre. Uh, he's going to do multiple characters from that. Uh, it's weird. It's like what? What if we made coked out Robin Williams a cop, an ex cop? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and his whole deal is he's he's searching his his drug deal, drug dealer Moby Dick, his Calderon. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's making the case that this guy's also making a comeback, that he is here to. Uh, you know, settle up all family business and soon like he's going to bring the drug trade uh, back under his control, even though he's been gone for like 30 years. Uh, no, nah, more like more like 10, I suppose. But he's been yeah, it was like 79 is when he, he left. Right. But his career tracks back to like the earliest days of like uh, South Florida turning into a cocaine uh, right. like shipping hub. Yeah. Um, which I also kind of dig this notion of, by the way, there's this long history here of like us steadily losing this war on drugs. <laughs> like that we can mm-hmm. trace back to the 1960s when this appeared on our radar to today when like drugs are just pouring into the country uh, through South Florida. Um, but yeah, it's just such a weird, not just that he's also built himself a little crime machine. He's got his little, his little crime super. He has computer. a super crime computer that he built himself in his shitty apartment. And he is fucking, he, I don't know. I don't know if this computer is like, tracking criminals i fully thought it was gonna start talking by the way yeah when he said like (laughs) lorraine lorraine me rocket and tubs i was like this robot this robot's gonna talk it's gonna be rocky five it's gonna be like just watch it's so weird the era of kit (laughs) why not it is yeah this is around the time knight rider came out the idea of a talking computer not completely crazy but again like for a show that has not really dealt too much in far-flung technological stuff it's just very weird that this guy, this burnout ex-cop, has built himself a supercomputer, which he feeds information into, and they tell it tells him where crime is happening. I can't really tell what it's supposed to do. All I know, well, neither can Tubbs, but Tubbs knows there's something valuable about this. And so he cannily takes the floppy disk disk out of the drive to steal Lorraine's data files. That's where that's where Lorraine's brain lives, apparently. In that floppy. Yeah. Which was too small for the photos that were being pulled up uh, by by Lorraine. But nevertheless, uh, there we go. Also. Weird out of nowhere guest appearances. David Strahan as. Yes. Yeah. Always happy to see him. His old partner. I would say Strahan does not yet have full command of these types of bit roles that he will have later in his career. Like uh, this is one of those, like 
this is a like this would be a great Strahan Strahan character of this guy who's been dreading people coming to ask questions about his old partner for years. He gets some of that across, but the material isn't great. It's kind of an overwritten speech. It's a little bit melodramatic, and he can't do anything to improve it very much. Like yeah. that, that's kind of my read. Is like there's a lot of people you're gonna catch here. Steve Buscemi and another one. People who are just early career figuring out like what their screen presence would be. But I yeah. think by the end, he has gotten there. Yeah, he eventually gets there. But it's it's like you said, it's a weird episode and it's kind of jar jumps back between things you love and things you, you really don't love about the series. I will say the one thing I think really works is the big ocean bust scene. Still where still. Yeah. shit. Where all those boats converge on that weird dock house out there and then everyone's just... First of all, people are firing shotguns from what appears to be a mile away and hitting Again, people. They all come out. The entire vice yes. squad go. And I'm like, cool, they're gonna swarm it, right? No. The entire vice squad is in their boathouse. They just come out onto the porch and start just unloading wildly. At they are just a- dumping on this house. <laughs> I swear. They're like 200, 300 yards out. And yes, there's people pumping shotgun rounds in the air. It's like it's unreal. It is absolutely unreal. It is nonsense, but it is the kind of beautiful nonsense I look for in the series. <laughs> Tom, and I do. Tom's unloading the automatic rifle from the speedboat and yes. just going up and down and gives shit. Doesn't matter. It's going out into the ocean. Doesn't matter if we miss. Those bullets, they'll eventually just hit some fish or some seagulls or something. It's no big deal. But I think that, and I honestly, I do think the little twist ending at the end, which is that. Uh, the 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 crazy detective at some point right after that the, his big white whale got out of prison he just straight up murdered that dude and put him in a wall in the in the middle of nowhere in miami mummified drug dealer is kind of my favorite thing it's really great and they just straight up bring him in it's, it is a like you said it is a mummified ass body in that wall and it's like it's actually a good twist for an episode that maybe just doesn't completely work well, but I think it lands the ending pretty okay. Aided by D- Dire Straits Brothers in Arms. Like, this is them <laughs> yes. also taking a second crack at that energy of the pilot, which is uh, just sort of a menacing late night drive through the city. Even better shots of the car whipping through the city uh, than than before, uh, where it's not quite so obviously. It's not being pulled on a trailer, which I think is a huge advantage uh, for, the, for the sequence. Yes. Um but yeah, like the, the shootout at Stillsville is cool, like iconic South Florida location, uh, like like famous uh, lo- location for smuggling. Um, and then, yeah, the revelation is like, come, I, I got him. I caught him. Come be part of the bust. And Brothers in Arms is one of those, like, I think Nautilus in general, they tend to be dramatic tracks. They lend themselves well to moments like this this track specifically gets used to just punch up the gravitas of any show it's put like put into. Um, but something I think that works really well is I love the way like Crockett and Tubbs are palpably afraid of this guy as they right. go into this weird, creepy house. They like, this is where their performances do kind of work, which is where they stop being sort of the, the cocky swaggering, like star detectives. And you see like, they're genuinely freaked out because they have no idea what this guy's capable of. And that scene where he just sort of appears at the top of the stairs and just crosses the frame and gestures them onwards. 
and moves up and like it's creepy it's creepy they 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 walk into a, a a horror movie um and then you know it's it's a it's a small detail but i love when 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 mcgill sort of tells them you know i got him he's right here and it's in an empty room the savagery with which he picks up the pipe and just starts shattering the wall and like breaking it down just like out of control um it's it's great stuff um and then for some reason strahan's character is there but we we do get the like yep uh this guy's been cracked up for 10 years and we get that great like the 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 newspaper that I was shown holding on the day he was acquitted um you know he's still holding the paper saying that he was he was getting out of jail uh like the day he was murdered um and Strahan was involved in covering up the the killing it's great stuff uh yeah. it, like the episode is super uneven it's like those fucking impressions man yeah like they were going for a thing. They were trying to make you feel like this guy is off balance, but they couldn't do it in a way that did not feel like just the most cartoonish portrayal imaginable. And I don't think it's the actor's fault. I think it's just like someone said him is like it's showed him some like Robin Williams interviews and was like, OK, just do that. But like, you know, more crazy. And he tries to make it work. And I think he he makes it less embarrassingly offensive than it well, could be. It's funny because. It was supposed to be Dennis Hopper. Oh, oh was it really? Yeah. I but could he, see him maybe doing a little yeah. bit more with that. I don't know. I don't. I couldn't find out why he pulled out, but he pulled out and then they got McGill to, to jump in and. um, Yeah. Fascinating. That's because that I was thinking something. like McGill, like McGill's working before Nicolas Cage could light our way to characters like this. It's true. Yeah. Um, but Dennis Hopper as a proto like cage like performer in some ways. Um, yeah, I can see that working, but maybe there's a reason he was like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. You can let this character actor jump on this grenade. Uh, yeah. So like, but it's, like it, like I think those those last ten minutes are some of like the best uh, stuff you you get in Miami Vice. Um, that's about like all I have from the the main like man period of it. He does leave I think after the the, the second season. The series remains interesting. I think like there's some you know you, you pulled a, a, a Brian Dennehy episode where he's uh, part of a what if uh, what. Jim and uh, was it Tammy Baker? Yeah, Tammy yeah. Faye. Yeah. Uh, what if they, they got caught up in a drug sting? Uh, that's a cool, like, yeah. But and I think he's great in that episode, too. Well, this is the thing. And, and Dia, we were, we were talking about this last night. I think, like, there's parts of that episode that are fascinating. They're all the parts that have nothing to do with it being a Miami, Miami Vice episode. Right. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of like, I think one of the things that, you can feel the show running up against is there's times where I think it wants to do like character study stuff and like capture moments or aspects of eighties culture, but it always has to circle back to, but this is all being shot through the lens of this cast of characters. And like Dennehy's character is so much more interesting than the vice squad trying to make this bus stick. Yeah. I think there are episodes where like some of that plays a little bit better. I think the Phil Collins episode 
is one that threads that needle better. Like they they craft an interesting character for him. Uh, there's a good subplot kind of that he's baked into. They kind of get into some sort of like, you know, the excesses of, of you know, Miami Vice living in that episode while also just kind of making it its own standalone thing. And it's funny when it needs to be like, I think that's one of the more successful examples of it. But there's also a lot, like you said, where it just feels like sometimes the story they want to tell runs up against the structure of the show and the need to sort of like move on to the next after 48 minutes. And that Dennehy episode, I think, is particular is definitely one of them. Willie Nelson, also weird. Uh, well, again, Michael Mann, just desperate to work with Willie Nelson, uh, you know, doing it again. It's not a bad episode. Uh, it is weird to see Don Johnson play wi- wide-eyed enthusiast for the Texas Rangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, dude, you're not even from Texas. Like, I just don't buy for a second that, like, even as a kid, Crockett's there being like, damn, the Texas Rangers were the kind of lawmen I want to be. Uh, when it's like, dude, you were a football star. And you just kind of fell into this, which I can totally buy. But I just the thing I don't buy is him being like all misty eyed about like old timey gunslingers. Yeah, that feels much more like a Nash Bridges thing than a a, uh, a Miami Vice thing. But he's from Texas. Like he's I know he like I where's that like character Georgia. from? He's from Georgia. OK. Oh, they they cite the program, the football program he was with, okay. I think. Um, and he was like from one of the big SEC schools. Um, I want to say it was Georgia, but I don't think they go so far as to like make him a Texan. Okay. Um, but yeah, like it's you know it's uh, it, it's kind of cool. Like hey, there's there's Willie Nelson being a badass old lawman. Um, but you know, there's, there's it's a bit of like it's really good stunt casting. It's well executed, but like. Um, there's, there's times where that's just not going to work as well. Now you, mm-hmm. th- the two of you carried the ring to Mordor and you watched late, late series Miami. <laughs> yes. I, I watched a handful of episodes from seasons three and four. And then I watched the finale from five. I, I, I bounced around five a little bit. So what happens? Like not in terms of plot, but like, I know famously the wheels come off this wagon. What does it look like when the wheels come off this wagon? Because I would say, like, even at its high points, they do not look firmly attached. Uh, and yet the show continues to work. What makes it stop working? So I'll, I'll just say, since I, I, I for seasons three and four, I feel like three mostly holds it together. There are some episodes that there's like I'd say there's a greater ratio of weaker episodes than there is compared to two. But three still feels kind of like the same show for the most part. Four it gets a lot dicier from what I've seen. Like there's still some good guest stars. There's still some memorable moments, but it feels like it's starting to veer in a direction that is just a lot less interesting. And that kind of culminates with this arc that moves between seasons four and five. There's like a four episode kind of arc at the end where they introduce the Ian McShane. Uh, the, I don't remember if that's the introduction for him, but that's like, there's a big arc with him and his central American dictator character and all that stuff. And it just, it feels like they're trying to turn it into a darker show than it was ever intended to be. And it does not have the chops to handle any of that shit as they get into season five. Yeah. Season five is um, it's, it's very dark. It's very mean spirited kind of throughout. Um, it's very pessimistic about kind of uh, the state of the world. Um, uh, you know, uh, Miami Vice can't deal with crack. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. by the time it gets there it's like too much it's it's just like um 
there is there's a there's an episode called Too Much Too Late um that really sets up kind of everything going into the actual finale that does that is aired um which is about the sexual assault of a child Tubbs is you know Tubbs's chance at having a relationship and kind of getting out of this life and that falling apart um and all kind of hinges around like you know like crack addiction and a crack dealer and it's just it's not good it's really just like kind of you know it is mean-spirited in the way that like you know um uh Spielberg was going through some shit during the filming of like uh Temple of Doom and made a really miserable movie that's just really mean and cranky um it's that level of just unhappy with like everything and like even being there like it it Miami Vice in season five feels uncomfortable in its own skin at this point. To the point where, like, they're changing up the characters' appearances even. Like, they yeah. just straight up turn Crockett into Mel Gibson in Le- Lethal Weapon, like, hairstyle-wise. Yeah, he, he gets like, the bad feathered, uh, frosted, long hair with it. He gets the little the little, little ponytail in the middle yeah. of it. And, like, Tubbs has the beard for a little bit, and then they make him shave it off. But then he has it again later on in the season because they, they showed stuff out of order. You mentioned that one episode. So of the four lost episodes, three of them eventually aired, I think, during the summer on NBC. That one in particular never aired until it started syndicating on USA Network. So they straight up were like, this is too much. We can't air, ever air this episode yeah, until we, they we just can't, put it in syndication. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, the crack dealer, you know, sexually assaulting the child is too much for network television. And like, yeah, like watching, I'm kind of like, I feel bad watching this. None uh, of the Pam Greer arcs in the series are very good. No, which is but, sad because Pam Greer really kind of holds it like together. Um, when oh, she she's trying. Up. She's she doing, doing so everything much more she with can. the material than they give her. Um, but yeah, it's it's bad. And that episode in particular is just jarring in its awfulness. Yeah. The other episode I watched that like really stuck out is called The Cell Within. Um, and that one... Uh, Alex, did you watch this one at all? Or are you familiar? So with- I, I, I did end up watching this one this morning just because kind of because you you mention it and like, holy <laughs> shit, what are they doing here? We get this weird proto jigsaw like shit. Yeah. What? Um, the cell within it starts off with uh, um, there's a they're, they're like at like a uh, they're at like a bookstore. But like they're talking about this. Um, there's a book release and a film director and the film director is talking about, you know, this this this, you know, compelling character. And they're all there to celebrate this compelling character who's got this autobiography. And uh, it turns out he was like an ex um, like, you know, drug lord who, you know, he killed people and he went to jail and in jail. He bettered himself. He read books and um, now he's out and he's rehabilitated and he's got this book. Um, and he invites Tubbs to go to a dinner party with him. And, you know, while they're there, they're kind of talking about like, man, you know, uh, it's bad. It's bad in the world. There's a lot of crime. But also, uh, you know, he's like he puts he's like, like I want to do an experiment. Let's free associate. And he's got this like panel that drops down and there's like four television monitors. And he's putting up like images on the television monitors and he's having Tubbs free associate with them. And like one is like rioting. And then there's like, like, you know, um, there's like investment bankers. And like, we go through this list and Tubbs is like identifying like, oh, you know, like the real crime in the world are like 
uh, we ended up being with like psycho, like school, like prison psychologists, prostitutes, um, stockbrokers, and and like he's just like we're gonna we're gonna fix the world, you and me, Tubbs. <laughs> And then we, turns out he's got this like weird prison complex installed in this mansion that's like subterranean. And like he's got like kind of like, you know, representative, like he's got a drug dealer in like one. And he's got like, you know, this like, you know, what? one like sex worker in the other. And then he's got his prison psychologist in another. And like it's just he's going to execute them because of their Which, like. This is the one you were saying, like basically Jigsaw. Yeah. yeah it's like, just right up Saw. This, it's it is like this weird proto jigsaw thing, and it is so like off the rails, and like you know, like Tubbs is like, no man, like you can't do it like this, and like then tries to like help everyone, like and like he as he's helping them, they all end up getting killed, and like except for like, the prison psychiatrist who he like you know he manages to like you know keep alive. <laughs> it, it so it goes full saw. It does. It goes full. hundred percent. Yeah. Like there's like a, there's a whole scene where Tubbs is like, he, he, um, he's like talking to the prostitute and he's like, you know, look, I'm going to catch, I'm going to keep you alive, but you got to do what I'm saying. Stop being so damn horny. And he's got to pretend to be a virgin. And so he, you know, they dress her up, he takes the makeup off her face and they, 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 they turn her into this little virginal character. She puts a scarf over her head. Holy shit. And and he t- takes it and presents her to this dude who is dressing like a priest, but like a weird like Anton LaVey kind of priest. <laughs> and, it is and, unreal. It, it is unreal. And then they go to this room, this like white bedroom. It's like very like 1980s, like modern bedroom. And like, you know, the, the guy is talking and he's like, he's like, oh, you know, you, you, you a virgin. What happened to you? Tell me, tell me about how your dad molested you. And that's why you're this way. And as he's doing this, he's like, like creeping up like the, the, the woman's leg with his hands. And he's like, do you like this? And she's like, if you want me to like it. And he's like, that was the wrong answer. And then kills her. And then Tubbs is like, oh, no, what happened? Oh, well, I can at least save the prison psychiatrist. <laughs> oh. Like, there are some characters in arcs throughout the series that feel like they wandered in from a completely different show, but still find a way to work. You know, like Julian Beck, I think, in that season two premiere as like the arch capitalist skeletal banker guy that just wanders in to explain to you why capitalism needs cocaine to work. Yeah. <laughs> And like the Frank Zappa character in season two who just shows up on a boat for a scene and then dives off the boat. And that's the last you see of him. Like there are those moments where it's like this person is inhabiting a completely different space, but they find a way to make this work. This whole episode feels like such a weird digression, even from season five. It feels like it's being like projected back through from like like from 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 millennium. Totally. It is it is a bizarre bizarre experience from top to bottom and then at the very end you say like it basically turns into the full a team yeah <laughs> yes like, are finale, they, like is it totally. basically they're going to latin america to like fight the authoritarians kind of so the, the setup for the the finale is rooted around the ian mcshane character who is this dictator of a fictional latin american country uh, who they have run up against before. Robert Beltran of Chakotay of Star Trek Voyager fame <laughs> is sort of his right-hand man. And he's in deep with a cartel. That is how he got his power. And okay, so... He's so like a Noriega-type character? Kind he's of, a, yeah. 100%, yeah. yeah. And so they send 
Crockett and Tubbs down there, the government does. They kidnap them during a bust and bring them into this high school auditorium with a bunch of like dudes in suits sitting at tables on either side of the stage. And then the center guy, the general or the colonel, whatever, the DEA being like, all right, we need you're the best. We need to send you in to go and extract this dictator because the country is turning on him. And so they need him because he can name names and all these different cartel people and whatever. So and Crockett and Tubbs are like, we don't want to do this. And we're not going to get in bed with they've got Greg German uh, from Ali McBeal as like a low level like drug dealer in America. And like they're like, we're not going to get in bed with this scum. Yeah, but then eventually they get in bed with that scum. And so for the first half of the episode is them flying to the Central American country to extract this dude. And the whole thing it's like Far Cry 6 levels of barely anything. Like, it is the resistance that they are joining up with is basically the resistance from Predator right down to uh, Elpidia Carrillo, like the, the woman from Predator <laughs> yeah. just being the rebel leader. I love it. And also a nun? Yes, who is also a nun. And God they just dispense me. with her, by the way. Like, she gets a couple of scenes with Tubbs, and you're like, oh, they're going to do another romance thing. And it's like, nope, she just gets fucking shot as they're running away. With with the dictator and there's like twists and like backstabbing and whatever, but none of it matters. Like yeah. it all it is. It is. It is amazing how nothing this episode is for a finale. And also like it's weird because like they keep intercutting like um, throughout um, or I guess it's I guess it's between part one and part two. But they've got like footage of like. actual like latin american riots and revolutionary footage and it's like you know displaying like intercut throughout like just like you know look at the violence that the communists are doing there's one shot in particular where uh crockett is and tubs are in the back of a car being driven into town and the guy who's driving is like look at the splendor of our country and then crockett looks out the window and they cut to (laughs) b-roll of that is also the wrong resolution and it's like it all it's all like scanline crt footage it's like oh this was definitely not meant to be seen in hd because they did not have the footage to 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 upscale that but it's just like it is just such a weird episode and all the action like i said it feels very much like an a-team episode right down to the end where they 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 bring ian mcshane's character back to the u.s and there's a big shootout where Tubbs gets kidnapped, but then they they fucking, you know, just in Grand Miami fashion, eventually every cop in the Miami-Dade area shows up and just riddles this building with bullets to the point where it collapses on the last guy. They don't I don't even know that they show him getting shot. Just the whole building falls down on him. And then they're taking him away and they're having a big fight or no, I sorry, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Eventually, they're, the government decides they're going to whisk away Ian McShane's character because he knows too much. He knows about certain people high in the government who are in deep with all this stuff, and they can't let that info get out. And they call back a second time, because they also do this in the season two premiere, to that end of the pilot where the guy gets away. Yeah. And instead of letting the plane get away with the guy, they fire pistols and a submachine gun at the plane and it just explodes. <laughs> and by explodes, I mean a glider plane that sort of looks like the one that flew away explodes. And we get the shot of, you know, the 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 fire lights on the actors because we can't actually show a plane crashing. That's too much money. And then when that is all over with, they're walking away and then the government all shows up and they're like, what did you guys do? What did you do? 
And it somehow leads to them being like, we'll turn in our badges if we got to. You know, we did things the right way. And then poor Edward James Olmos, who I think is wearing a hairpiece in this episode, I assume because he's filming something else where his hair has to be different, just shows up in a car long enough to say, I'm here to back you guys. Not knowing what that conversation was or what was going on, they just needed him to get into the scene one last time. It's the finale. So he shows up and he's just like, I'll back your play. I'll do whatever. You don't have to turn in your badges. And they just turn them. Now I got to help these kids realize their dreams of passing AP Calc. Yep. And (laughs) so that is the end. That is the end of Edward James Olbus' character. And then the last shot is just them riding off in the Ferrari. I'd say into the sunset, but actually it's the airport to take Tubbs home. And then you get a montage of all the things you loved about Miami Vice, all the characters you loved, all the gu- fucking gunfights you loved. That one guy, that one partner of the 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 larger <laughs> uh, cop, like getting killed. That's oh, that's it. right, Switek and uh, yeah, Wes's. His- because there is a whole like B plot with Switek and yes. Switek's gambling problem. So wait, hold on. We do. I before we go, we do yes. need to explain. <laughs> we talked around this. Hmm. Miami Vice uses the time-honored dramatic tradition of clowns. Yes. Uh, to sort of just ha- bring in between scenes. Everything's, things are in danger of getting too heavy. You just bring on your stock comic characters to have a whole little bit. And it's Switek and... Uh, oh, fuck is his name? Um, the other guy. Yeah. Yeah. But it's yeah. like... Bigger cop and scuzzier cop is all I can put it. <laughs> and I think uh, they live together. It's, it sure is like a Laurel yeah. and Hardy type thing. Uh, also, scuzzier cop will appear in season one of The Shield as the disgraced uh, assistant chief uh, who turns out to be behind a truly blood curdling uh, like explosion of. Oh, yeah. Activity. Uh, Gilroy. Yeah. 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 Um, great turn in, in that. Where like his. Goes from being like an obviously like corrupt political operator with the LAPD, just being the grimiest fucking uh, like guy on the lam. It's terrific. But anyway, Miami Vice, part of the reality of the show is just routinely, no matter how serious the show is, we're going to take a little detour into the grab assing hijinks mm-hmm. of these two characters. Like the whole Phil Collins episode is rooted around Zwitek going on a game show that Phil Collins hosts, this really chintzy fucking game show that he's on with Amo Phillips. And it's just the whole episode is him being mad that he got screwed out of his money. And it's just him angrily wanting to get back at Phil Collins for an entire episode. And I think sometimes that stuff is great, but in season five, they get deep into his gambling addiction and it turns into, but some, but doctor, I am Zwitek clown territory. Like he's no! just, it's, it's make the clown guy depressed and a gambling addict. Like why? <laughs> yeah, no, it, make getting, getting dark with Zwitek is just like a decision that's made. Yes. And it's a bad decision, I think, yeah, because it, they don't even commit to it fully. Well, I mean, this sort of tracks with like um, what Gina and Trudy, right? End yeah. up like it appears that their go to subplot with Gina when she's not just like doing gopher type tasks for Crockett and Tubbs is to be sexually assaulted on the job. Um, like that, that appears to be just one of the subplots they bring in uh, with like, well, what do the women who sort of like pretend to be uh, prostitutes do. Uh, they probably go undercover as gangsters malls and, uh, you know, get in compromising situations that way. 
which is which is too bad because I do think um, they are like they're good performers. Uh, there's yeah. never given very much to they're just like sort of squadron presences right uh, so like i guess if switek and and dude man are the comic relief um they're these sometimes love interests but also sometimes just the sassy women of the group i think that's it they're like sort of the Susie durkins of miami mm. vice as well where it's like mm-hmm. they have to do all the like procedural police work the boring parts of the job like but they're Gina all hyper competent too taking notes yeah, during the meetings they are Pardon? They're hyper competent at, 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 at yes. like, you know, actually doing the job. Right. And like you can easily see like they would be the stars. And there's times it's all implied they're the stars of their own TV show uh, that's happening again, just out of frame, uh, driving around like cool convertibles, uh, getting up into like cool sisters doing it for themselves you know yeah but but in in the context of the show it's often like oh man like hey girls can you cover for us with the boss can you look the can you pull files on so and so a lot of that because uh like just to do the full full it's the crockett and tub show and it's always going to be yeah um which is fun because i think if and this is the thing i think you can easily imagine a version of the show where it's like much more of an ensemble Um, Mm -hmm. and I think this is maybe the direction it is interested in going. Um, and I think you sort of maybe even get a taste of, well, if Michael Mann has a, like complete freedom to sort of drop, what would his crime, like cop procedural look like? It's actually crime story. Right. Uh, And crime story in some ways is trying to be more grounded, but in other ways it's also much more of a man, uh, show because that one is directly about, two guys on opposite sides of the law going to war with each other and pulling everyone on their respective sides along into it with them. Um, whereas Miami Vice, I think does suffer at times from the fact that like if Crockett and Tubbs are not in a good a plot that like the show's just fucked. Yeah. If there isn't like a good guest star to maybe kind of bolster that, if there isn't a good a plot, there's really nothing there. And you know, because it doesn't really do long running serial plots. Yeah. And when they do do the serial plots, like they're only intermittently good. Like there are a couple of recurring things that I think are interesting, like some of the Lombard stuff. But a lot of it just feels like they try it and then they kind of have to throw it away because it's not actually that interesting. So like where I end up coming down with uh, Miami Vice in a lot of ways is stylistically you can see a lot of Michael Mann in it uh, in terms of the themes it's interested in uh, you, you see a lot and I, but I, I am also left wondering to what degree is this becomes the easiest thing Michael Mann can sell throughout his career. Mm-hmm. Um, when all else fails, he can tell a story about driven guys with guns. Um, and is that inherently Michael Mann or is it just that is what people are buying from him um, after a point? Because when I think about like what he does in the 90s, it's weird that after Manhunter, like the next feature film is Last of the Mohicans, where he takes that like he takes that Miami Vice cred like, hey, man, you made one of the coolest, like dominant cultural products of the 80s. What do you want to do? And he's like, James Fanamore Cooper adaptation. <laughs> Got to do it. <laughs> I mean, he had such a bad experience trying to adapt the keep that I wonder if it was just, you know, I want another shot at it, you know? Yeah. I mean, he obviously he adapted the, the Thomas Harris novel, too. But like, it's just 
you know, he has his passion projects. And this was obviously he saw something in that material that he really wanted to do. But you're right. I do think this is probably the easiest thing he ever had to sell in his life. Like producing this show, MTV Cops, was yep. was just like, you know, a winner from the get go. But that show also could have been a two season dud and moved yes. on. You know, like there's there's no reason that it should have remained as a cultural staple unless there was something to it. And I think there was something to it. I think there was something more than just the style exercise that, you know, it kind of gets reduced down to not for the whole run, but for those first few seasons, I feel like they, especially with that pilot and that first season, then even, even in kind of a couple of the ensuing seasons, I think they make one of the best police procedurals of all time. I think they, they have memorable characters. They're able to pull in a soundtrack that is unlike anything else, certainly of that era. And they pull in an array of of guest stars that you just look at that Wikipedia page of all the people that were on that show over the years. And it's just like, it's fucking incredible. Like Law and Order is maybe the only other show they can lay claim to the sheer number of incredibly talented people who got who cut their teeth on this show. And, you know, even when it falters, I still think it's more interesting than most other cop shows. I think the worst episode of Miami Vice is probably better than your average episode of CSI or NCIS or anything else that they're producing nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting how much man gets credited, like just kind of just casually and socially for Miami Vice. Um, Just even like in my brain, like I still have to remind myself, I'm like, no, he didn't like do much like beyond. he, He was a producer. He was really just a producer of Miami Vice, but it is so much a Michael Mann property culturally that um, it's really kind of interesting in that regard. Um, I assume that's because like Anthony Yurkovich is just not a household name the way yeah. that Michael Mann is. And also he, I, I mean, the one thing he is credited for is very much shaping the show's visual style, mm-hmm. like no like, earth tones. This need, this is how this has to look. And I think, I think, you know, we kind of do get like, um, it, it is an interesting moment in kind of how a producer can impact a production uh, in that regard. Yeah. Like it's, it's weird. I think these days, like people are very like conversant with like the role of a showrunner, right? In the sense of mm-hmm. like how do writers' rooms work out? I think a lot of this is sort of like this isn't as well documented around Miami Vice. Like there, there, like you go back through. There are people who say, "Well, Michael Mann was actually hugely involved in like conceptualizing the look of the show, like uh, quietly." if not like outright directing episodes, uh, certainly like guiding uh, their direction in, in a lot of cases, but also there's no denying the fact that like he w- he found the exit after two seasons. He ran it by himself for a season and a half. Um, and yes, does sound like even back to the pilot, he determined what the aesthetic of that show would be and mm-hmm. what his vibe would be very important stuff. Um, and clearly there's themes here that he is, very attached to because he revisits a lot of them throughout his career and later. But yeah, it's, it's odd that this like very in some ways, traditional network TV product ends up being ascribed as this like uniquely Michael Mann thing. Um, When there's also a lot of evidence that those inconsistencies that we run up against, like this is just inherent to the form in this period. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, at the same time, like, by virtue of it being so successful and, and his name being attached to it, you know, it did sort of inform, I think, you know, what a lot of like what man's style became after this. And I feel like, you know, 
whatever you want to attribute to sort of like the the culmination of the different showrunners and producers and and whatever on the show, Michael Mann will never escape Miami Vice being his thing, no matter what. And, you know, he obviously he isn't running away from that because in the in the 2000s, he's like, well, I'm just going to take another crack at this thing. Well, and uh, you can say, like, he's also tried to make comebacks in the TV. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he the prestige TV era did roll around and he was like, you know, what I'm going to do. I'm going to make my magnum opus about horse racing. And then his ironclad commitment to realism just caused too many horses to die. And so they had to shut down because horse racing, aren't we? Horse racing kills horses. That's what it does. And he was like, no, we have to shoot the horse racing. And they're like, all right, but that means you're going to be shooting horses. And he was like, I can live with that. Turns out HBO could not. Well, the horses couldn't live with it. <laughs> Neither, yes, exactly. <laughs> the horses were just really committed to the role. Uh, the method horses raised mm-hmm. from birth to to be in to be in luck. Uh, just gave everything. Um, I heard that oh, show was good. Have if you to set aside that. all the horses. We are going to have to watch that at some point. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> and also, we might still be going with this by the time Tokyo Vice comes out. It's true. Yeah, I'm not lying. I am excited for Tokyo Vice. Don't even know what it is. Don't I care. I am too. I kind of am too. Yeah. Michael Mann, directing a cop show. Ken Watanabe in Sold. Say no more. Yep. Uh, so I think we'll put a pin in Miami Vice for now. I think a lot of this is going to come up again when we revisit. Let's call it a divisive movie adaptation uh, starring Jamie Foxx and Colin Farrell. When we do revisit it. I think we're going to watch the director's cut, but I think the differences between the two cuts are worth talking about because like you have camps that say man always makes his films longer, but not necessarily better. Um, and then you have fall like he fucked with my uh, last no, he like several times. Uh, there's a cut for the, like I want to say the second DVD release uh, like has shit in it that never appeared anywhere else. And then he cut for the final Blu-ray. Huh. Uh, I think Miami Vice's director's cut is a better film. I mean, it makes sense in a way the, the feature cut does not, but we'll, we'll discuss that uh, when we get around to it for now, a lot ahead of us until then. Yeah. For now, <laughs> I think we've got a, uh, a passion project of his. We need to get into before we get back to his suddenly booming uh, feature film career following Manhunter, uh, the great and gritty Dennis Farina hard-boiled detective show Crime Story. Now, I suspect most of you have not come across this, and I do strongly recommend, once again, at least checking out the pilot. The pilot of Crime Story, even more than the pilot of Miami Vice, is like a standalone feature uh, starring a lot of the cast of Thief. My feeling on Crime Story is that it's one of those buried treasures of TV history that was like over a decade ahead of its time. uh, And you can feel it chafing against Mm -hmm. the structure and form of network TV dramas throughout a great first season before Crime Story just kind of throws in the towel for an infamously disastrous second season, which maybe you'll watch a bit of again just to see like, Again, how do the wheels come off this thing? Spoiler alert, they just kind of shit can the entire really well-realized Chicago setting that they built across the first season. We're like, let's move this thing to Vegas and make it cool like Miami Vice. Uh, Yeah, I've never seen this series before. Uh, 
I think I, I I can commit myself to watching. There's only 13 episodes in each season, so I feel like I can get through this one. Yeah, I think I can, I can do the whole thing too. That's, I don't that's... think it'll be hard. Like I like like that first season <laughs> of Crime Story is like genuinely like very good. And awesome. I like terrible television. And I love Dennis Farina. So I love old cars and there watching old cars try to do car chases. <laughs> On suspensions that don't flex, uh, so oh, I'm God. into that too. Uh, it's re- you want to you want to see some cars not being able to chase each other very well, but giving it their best anyway. Crime story. Uh, until then, thanks for listening and subscribing to Waypoint Plus and putting up with our extremely ex- uh, our extremely specific bullshit around uh, Michael Mann. Hope you enjoyed this trip back to Miami Vice and got something out of it. Uh, and maybe have sort of we've rescued the show a little bit from the uh, parodied pop cultural object uh, that, that I think it often often is. I mean, uh, I'm going to go play Vice City after this. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you all for doing this with me. I hope you had fun. Uh, I know I did. I know that. Also, I, I have I'm going to keep watching some of these episodes of Miami Vice. I, I mean, this just do. deep into my appreciation for Silk Stockings, if anything. And see, I came out of this being like, you know what? I think it's time to get into moonlighting. Oh, God. never a bad time to get into. Moonlighting. Well, you still have to do Forever Night, Rob. God damn it. Which one is that? The Vampire Detective. Oh, fuck. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, I remember I you I told you about, about it years ago yeah, on yeah, a podcast. Shit. shit. Well. <laughs> Never been a better time. Oh, it's Canadian, so you know it's good. Mm-hmm. Canadian TV, always, always bringing it. Um, not to, not to not, but you know. You know, you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> oh, I know what you're getting at. I'm in. All right, so uh, after manhunting, uh, we we've heard you. You, you uh, you're desperate for more weirdly specific bullshit. I think we can we can promise right now we're definitely doing a forever night episode episode rewatch. Hell yeah! Perfect. <laughs> Mark it down for the year 2050. <laughs> after we're done with moonlighting. All right. Peace. Bye. Bye. I'm just, you know, I just regret that we couldn't, you know, get these episodes. We didn't put these episodes in your hand because I think you'd have been fascinated by his depiction of Florida culture, Colombian oh, culture. God. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> it's just, just a real treasure. Jesus um, Christ. Also, <laughs> like, great hands they give them. white actors to make them. Oh, you know, no. <laughs> Look, they got Roberto Beltran. They did. <laughs> they got one. They got at least one on there. We got the Latin American Ian McShane. <laughs> it's so good. It, also, they're like, man, it's it's like literally my they're Miami sets. Like it's it's Oceanside South Beach. Great. Okay, we need to go to Columbia. Move the cameras through the alley to the back of the buildings facing <laughs> facing the beach, <laughs> and voila, just uh, change the signage. Shit. Uh, it's, it's real. It's, it's something else. My favorite is still, uh, silk stockings trying to pass off, uh, Scottsdale, Arizona as, um, Palm beach. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good one.
there are palm trees there, you know. <laughs> All right, uh, everyone go to time.is. I'm already there. I'm a pro. Damn. Right. I'm 0.5 seconds into the future. <laughs> Me the too. Worst Max Headroom episode. Uh, all right. Uh, shall we go on 10 seconds? You got it. Perfect.